Yes, hello. It's Jason Louvre. Welcome back to the Ultra Culture Podcast. Got a super, super exciting episode for you today. Uh, this is a pretty heady one. I'm talking to Dr. Ted Achikozo. Uh Yes, I'm doing interviews again. I know, it's, it's a miracle. Um, Dr. Ted is a super fascinating and complex guy. I'm not quite sure where to begin in introducing him. I'll, I'll just read what his students said. One of his students reached out to me uh, to connect us, which I'm super, super glad about because we had a great conversation. And here's what his student said. Um, I believe my mentor, Dr. Ted Achikoza, would be a great guest on your podcast. He's a polymath and has one of the highest IQs ever measured, somewhere in the range of 186 to 210, which is a one in a billion rarity. And I thought I was smart. Okay. He's had pioneering contributions to neuroscience and AI and wireless communication technology. He's one of the world's leading anti-aging and health optimization physicians, and he's an advanced understatement, his student says. It is an understatement that he is advanced meditator and shaman, uh, particularly in the traditions of Tibetan Bonpo shamanism and Zogchen, two spiritual traditions I have an immense fascination with. Um, for those who don't know, Bone or Bone Po or Bone Pa sometimes is the indigenous shamanism of Tibet pre-Buddhism, uh, and it's super out there. Uh, also Zogchen, which is kind of the highest reaches of uh, Tibetan Buddhism, Vajrayana, uh, the non-dual tradition within within Vajrayana. Super fascinating stuff. Uh, his student says he, uh, Dr. Ted also happens to be a magic aficionado. And when I asked him if I could pitch him for your podcast, his response was, I love Jason's magic. Okay, uh, sure. So uh, yeah, I had never heard of Dr. Ted, but now I'm glad I have because I had a great, great conversation with him. He's been on a ton of other podcasts. He's, let's see, he's been on Bulletproof Radio with, uh, with uh, Dave Asprey. He's been on Ben Greenfield's fitness podcast, um, a ton, ton of other stuff. He linked me tons of his publications and studies and, and work that he's done uh, and inventions, patents that he's created. Here's his official bio, okay? And, and he also introduces himself, so... Uh, but here's his official bio. Dr. Ted Achikozo earned his college degree in biology at the age of 18 and his doctor of medicine degree at the age of 22. At 25, he was a fellow of interventional neuroradiology, a research professor of pharmacology and toxicology, and a clinical professor of neurology in Manila. That's in the Philippines. At 28, he became a professor of medical informatics, uh, in uh, yeah, informatics and of interventional neuroradiology in Washington, D.C., where he also performed artificial intelligence research biased towards connectionist systems. At 30, he began science and technology consulting for socially responsible investment funds. At 35, he founded and ran a group collaboration software company and created the first wireless groupware. At 40, he traded currencies using, using artificial intelligence, predictive technologies, and techniques for a private fund. At 45, he retrained in interventional endro, uh, endocrinology, anti-aging medicine, and in nutritional medicine in Paris, uh, as you do, and became double board certified in both specialties. 
Dr. Ted wrote the first ever connectome of C. elegans in a book, is published in peer-reviewed scientific journals, holds U.S. patents and software algorithms, provides TV and podcast interviews, and delivers lectures. He currently has a tricontinental practice in health optimization medicine, a clinical framework that he pioneered to include health management in a disease management practice. He also formulated the blue canatine nootropic trochi, a product in the Troscriptions line of Smarter Not Harder Incorporated. Well, okay. Uh, so one thing I have noticed with super, super smart people is it is almost impossible to categorize them and because they are fascinated by everything. And that is something that I've always been attracted to. It's certainly how I am. Um, there's just a sense of being fascinated with the entire world uh, and all of its intricate systems. Uh, that's certainly how John D was, you know, you can pick that up from the, the my John D book. Um, and that's, you know, it's, it's also a certain hallmark of the hermetic tradition, although I'm not saying that Dr. Ted is a hermeticist, although he's much more interested in Buddhism, but you know, it's a hallmark of the hermetic tradition of just the study of everything. Uh, and, I think that there really is a common trait, particularly with very, very intelligent people, that they're interested in what consciousness itself is uh, for for obvious reasons. And that often leads them to, for instance, meditation and um, sometimes even more, more out there techniques. <laughs> so, um, so, which is all a long way of saying that I found Dr. Ted absolutely fascinating. You will too. We talked a lot about basically everything that I just touched on. We talked about artificial intelligence. We talked about uh, networks. We talked about um, um, <laughs> financial markets. We talked about just about everything. But we also talked quite a bit about meditation and shamanism. And he has some very unique takes um, and, and very well articulated uh, thoughts on how meditation actually functions within the brain. Also psychedelics. He talked quite a lot about psychedelics. So um there's, there's a lot to chew on here. I think you'll really, really enjoy the interview. And uh, just 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 flow with it because it goes all over the place and it's great. Okay, so on that note, uh, have you been to Office Hours recently? Office Hours at magic.me, which is M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for meditation, magic, and mysticism, has been in full swing. We've been doing it every two weeks. Uh, the last one was almost five hours long. Uh, Office Hours is really the heart and soul of Magic.me, where, of course, you can take courses in uh, just about everything as it pertains to consciousness magic and the occult. That includes chaos magic, hermeticism, astral projection, tarot, you name it. It's all there, and particularly my flagship courses, Adept Initiative and Alchemy of Chaos, which are designed to take you from zero to 60 into uh, feeling that uh, you are a victim of reality to you are at cause for everything in your reality uh, very, very quickly. I've had nothing but awesome reviews for those courses, um, and I'm very, very proud of them. So we're obviously developing Magic.me all the time, but Office, office Hours, um, which I sometimes call Magic Without Tears, Office Hours is really the heart and soul of it. So like I said, we do it every two weeks, and uh, anyone who's a paid subscriber can come and uh, pose a question, and often I will do magic with people right there, uh, you know, using you know, certain techniques for to create personal breakthroughs, um, or we'll just talk about the nitty-gritty of, of 
uh, practice questions as it relates to magic or uh, where people are at in their lives or I mean really it's it's a phenomenal phenomenal experience uh, it's a great community um, everyone who's come to office hours has been immensely immensely positive genuine curious um, sincere in their practice for my money it is the best magic community anywhere in the world right now um, and really is really great in a way that you know we used to have in person there's still in-person magic stuff but Obviously, we live in the post-COVID world and, and things like that, but um, it, it truly is a, a space where that sincere connection between students can exist and move everyone up to a higher level together as a group. And, and that's just an essential part of the magic experience. You can't just get it from books. You do have to practice. But in, in, in addition to practicing, it is important and helpful uh, at a certain point to compare notes with other people. And office hours is the best way to do that, I think. Just uh, it's a it's a supportive, nurturing, safe, and mutually beneficial environment. So check it out. Um, if you're a subscriber to Magic.me, you can join in at any time. And you can also watch all of the previous, uh, you know, we now have something like three, four years of archive sessions. So um, it's all there for you. Uh, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous. The best, the very best. Okay, so on that on that on that note, um, please enjoy the interview and check us out at magic.me m a g i c k dot m e. All right. With no further ado, here is Doctor Ted. God, there's a million-dollar voice right there. <laughs> You're too kind. All flattery accepted. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, Jason. No, um, it's true. Didn't you see the study that said that voices like yours tend to be more elected as leaders and tend to be respected as authorities on stuff? <laughs> hey, that can uh, give you... I, I would like to see that study. I, I... <laughs> <laughs> and uh, they're now training programs for women to actually lower their voices because they climb higher in the corporate ladder. That I have uh, heard. The, the vocal fry thing, right? That, that, yeah, that I have heard. N- n- no, this one is a lower voice. And when I heard your voice for the first time and I said, whoo, Jason for president of the United States. <laughs> well, I, I accept, thankfully. I'll, 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 I'm not immune to flattery. <laughs> well, well, I should, uh, I, should uh, I should, do the same with you. I've, re- I've read you, uh, your, your background is incredible, right? You've done, you, and we share so many interests in common. I mean, from AI to uh, Zogchen. And, you know, I mean, that those two right there, that's, that's you know, like a, eight podcasts. So, you know. <laughs> no, thank you. I, um, you know, um, I, I'm perfectly happy to be to be uh, quiet, Jason. You know, I'm I'm old now. I've seen the development of all of this stuff through the okay. years. And um, it's Shaker who says, no, 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 you shouldn't, uh, you know, go. And um, my, my uh, experience has been for the past five years, it's like the book that I wrote in 1992, which is like increasing in, in, uh, in reference. And I said, what's going on? And uh, I, I, I called one of the researchers. And yeah, I, saw said, that. Some, I saw even in what you sent me, you said that your, your, your work has been cited like 2000 times. By yeah. It's like I, 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 I had to ask them what's going on. I said, oh, didn't you know you created the world's, the world's first complete connectome for an organism? I said, I did. Well, I had a different name for it. It was uh, um, 
the you know circuitry database for neural well, networks. Why don't we? Uh, okay. Why don't Why don't we? Um, why don't we start? You, you just want to? I know you said you wanted to listen, but but I think let's let's not for now. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> listen. I'm gonna listen. Um, okay. Why don't we just start off? You want to just talk about your background and and tell sure. the audience about the many things that you've done and and how you you know wh- where you're at now and and introduce yourself, please, to the audience. Alrighty. Um, well. Um, Let's get to the boring introduction, which I can finish in like two minutes. Um, I was a, a college graduate at the age of 18, and then I was a doctor of medicine at the age of 22. Um, at 25, I was a member of the faculty of pharmacology and toxicology, so I know my poisons. Um, uh, <laughs> and um, uh, I was also faculty of uh, um, neurology. Uh, and, uh, uh, of course, of uh, interventional neuroradiology, which I uh, used to say I used to poke brains for a living. You know, if you've ever heard of doctors who would insert tubes to vascular tumors in the brain to sclerose them or to, to uh, stop them from growing, that would have been me. And I used to work with neonates. And uh, the first thing that parents usually told me is, you know, if anything happens to my child, I'll sue you. So that was a kind of... <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, okay. And then um, at 28, I became a member of faculty of medical informatics at the George Washington University in Washington, D.C., uh, the, the medical school there. And um, I was trained by uh, the guy who started it all, uh, medical informatics globally. And uh, my research there was in artificial intelligence. And uh, there I, a, at the age of 30, I wrote uh, my first book, which is the um, neural circuitry of the, the workhorse or workworm of, of uh, research uh, C. elegans, um, where I actually um, uh, wrote uh, and put in, into a spreadsheet all of the connections of the nervous system of the worm. And um, I had a very, very strange um, a premise for doing that. And I said, uh, essentially, if I am able to take away the network that uh, feeds and the network that mates and the network that moves, you know, will I find a network that says, no, I'm going to feed, I'm going to mate, I'm going to move, right? And uh, that's the, um, uh, the uh, sort of the, the philosophy behind that research. And inadvertently, you know, that's where I found out that I wrote the first complete connectome for an organism. And I was uh, 35. I started a groupware company, um, filed a few patents. And, you know, much of them is being used by Facebook and Microsoft right now. Um, and um, uh, essentially, it was on distributed uh, computing, um, which we are using uh, extensively right now. Uh, the cloud-based computing that we're using now was essentially based on what's called a tuple-space technology. And initially, I was working on it uh, in order to further uh, robotics, for example, tele-robotics, where you know you are um, actually doing a surgery, and I'm in Washington, D.C., and you're in California, mm-hmm. and, um, and the 
the internet stops, you know. Um, <laughs> so what's what's? I didn't think I never considered that. Or there's a hopefully there's a backup power generator also. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh no! What are you going to do? And that's the mechanism for that, uh, right? You hit, that, your, you hit your data cap on your, yeah, on your phone. Yeah, and and um, you know where it found its uh, its uh, use is actually when you're withdrawing from an ATM, right? And you already put everything else, and then everything stops. It should be able to remember where you are. And that's a temporary storage in the cloud and so on. But it was uh, uh, in a small space. And right now, it's like huge uh, stuff like this. This is, always was, my, this is always one of my great worries about, you know, as things get more and more privatized, it's like privatized healthcare. It's like you'll be happy. Yeah, like you'll be halfway through a uh, surgery and it, it logs you out. And you've, got to, you've got to solve a CAPTA to get back in, you know, like halfway through neurosurgery. Or uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it's like, it's oh, like, you're, you're, you need to renew your Amazon Prime brain surgery subscription. It's like, uh, Put in your next coin, right? Put in your right. next Bitcoin to complete exactly. the surgery. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, and and then I was um, and I was thirty years old. Uh, I was certainly lecturing Jason on the dangers of being extensively connected in internet. And I used to say that you know if I farted in Washington D.C., no one should be able to hear about it in in California unless you mean of course, social social uh, connection. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, so what are, what are the dangers of that? Do you, do you think? Because it destabilizes the information that there's too much noise in, in the network. Remember, I started uh, with the internet when if I post uh, a question about the Navier Stokes equation on how the worm would move, six Nobel laureates would respond to me the next day. Right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the kind of internet that I knew at the time. Yeah, the, the so, way it was supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, the, the, uh, and and uh, and so um, you know, I, when I started this company at thirty-five, I was uh, already looking at parallel computing and and so on. But this was uh, groupware, you know, uh, and uh, the product of that was the first uh, commercially available wireless groupware. Um, was produced, and then um, at forty, I I, I, uh, I got tired of the whole scene and I said I wanted not to socialize for a while I have these bouts of just wanting to be by myself so I basically um, uh, just uh, bought myself uh, six screens and and um, and uh, some powerful computers and I started trading currencies for um, um, for an investment uh, uh, fund I'm curious what your experience with that was like because I know a lot of really really smart you're obviously you know ph phenomenally off the bell curve smart and uh, but i know a lot of very very smart people get into trading often coming from technical backgrounds or computer backgrounds or mathematical backgrounds and um sometimes they're frustrated uh sometimes yeah. they're very successful and sometimes they realize it's yeah. not as uh, uh, uh the, the system can't be hacked in the way that they thought perhaps Okay, Jason. There's a, there's a. I have to give a little background here. When I was 30, also, I became a senior science and technology advisor to a really uh, multi-million-dollar fund. Um, actually, it was a 1.6 billion-dollar fund. Wow. And so that basically placed me on one side of the table, right, uh, where I was approving, um, you know, companies where we would. Um, invest in. And when I was running my company, I was on the other side of the table, right? And I was the one asking for money. Um, uh, in fact, um, when I came back after two months on the road and, um, you know, I, I brought in like $10 million, uh, the Washington Technical um, uh, Magazine 
basically asked me, he says, how does it feel to bring home the bacon? And I said, well, you know, I feel like a, a geisha who's opened her kimono one too many times. Oh, no. <laughs> and, oh, no. And, you know, and it's like the next day, it's like all of these uh, uh, newspapers came. And, and then uh, towards the end of, of that experience, I said, there's really one part of this whole uh, ecosystem that I know nothing about, which is money. You know, how is it created? What's the value in it, et cetera? So, I started diving into it. You know the the old adage that if you're Michael Jordan, never go never go golfing. Well, I basically uh, did not follow that. <laughs> Many times and, I should have listened to that. <laughs> and um, and uh, I uh, basically to your answer your question now is see I've always been very very. Uh, 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 my perspective has always been very evolutionary. So my models that work there using artificial intelligence models are evolutionary models. And I was selling people who actually cared, right? To, to not to bet on one or two models, but use different neural network models, predictive models like flocking, you know, um, uh, like uh, flocking or, or um, fuzzy logic and all of these other things that you could do right uh with with uh artificial intelligence and then i uh, usually i had a model at like um uh sunday afternoon when the australian markets would open right sydney and then it goes 24 hours and then um i would have like 12 models competing by by wednesday you know they would have been whittled down to six and usually by friday i usually just have one or two running and the, the most scary part is when you're on, on a Friday and there is just one model left and has not made a single win. And then mm -hmm. suddenly before, you know, before you know it, it just makes this one trade that saves all of your trades for the whole. OK, week. well, then that, that's yeah. a successful experiment, right? <laughs> yeah, but, but um, that was consistently like that. So you, you don't have to take a look. You have to make it compete in the landscape. But where it could not compete, Jason, because it was training on old data, right? Or if it were unsupervised, it really cannot anticipate what the ECB uh, uh, minister is going to say, uh, the European Central Bank uh, sure, minister sure. is going to say. And uh, in fact, that was my my entree into currency trading is losing $30,000 in the first two minutes of my very first trade. So, <laughs> because um, because uh, Trichet, who was then the ECB when I was a minister when I was uh, trading just said something that sent the markets really tumbling, uh -huh. you know, and it just went on for, for about an hour. So I learned to stop my models before major news announcements. Mm -hmm. However, it's become crazy after that. See, it goes on with the technology as the technology gets more and more connected. You see that um, uh, and, and all of these uh, uh, signals, you know, are being given out at various times of the day, it's so difficult now for the models to actually catch anything that's going on, right? Just because things are so interconnected with the global. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. and people it's are so putting much, out so bits and pieces. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Look, Elon Musk would say something about dog e-coin. E <laughs> it's it's fantastically crazy, right? So yeah. or, for, or, for, or do the, the 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 stock target like the target price for Tesla at like four twenty or something. Like that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, well, that's because her her uh, his uh, his uh, girlfriend, right? Uh, like uh, for <laughs> for got he got Yoko. Um, yeah, and then um, at, at forty five, uh, my friend 
who taught me about finance. He is uh, Wayne Silby, of course. He's uh, he, she's the one who started the whole socially responsible investing uh, movement, and it's great. now okay, called great, great. yeah, it's now called impact investing, right? They've renamed. Yeah, I know. It. I know. I'm aware of it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's uh, my my uh, BFF here in DC, <laughs> and and you know we 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 talk uh, every time. And he came to my house and he said that you know you're playing a zero sum game. Uh, you know, time to return to to humans and um, and uh, you know. Uh, 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 apply the values that you've you've had before you, you even uh, went on currency trading. So um, uh, I, I thought about this seriously, and uh, I, I went back to a conversation that we had, like uh, you know, when I was thirty five years old. He said, "Dad, where do you think medicine is going?" And I said, "I think it's going into regenerative medicine, into uh, um, you know, um, health uh, away from disease, and all of this." and and uh, I was looking for like a, a a course here in the United States that I could take, and unfortunately, they didn't have anything on nutritional medicine. And you know, we only have three hours of nutrition in med school. Um, so I went to Paris, and there I actually got um, uh, another uh, double certification: one in interventional endocrinology or anti-aging medicine, as they call it here in the U.S., and the other one in nutritional medicine. But I still thought that the uh, that the whole the whole process was still geared towards disease. Like you take the supplements if you have this, right? Why can't we take our bodies to uh, shop and say we want it for maintenance? And at the time, I noticed that the technology already existed. It's like what's common to all the organs in the body, and it's the cell, right? I, and can we take a look now inside the cell? Uh, you know, uh, because uh, when we were in medical school, we just have to memorize everything in biochemistry, and then we pass that whole thing. But now it's like you can now check the molecules inside and their levels, like your levels of vitamin A, C, E. You don't have to guess anymore. Uh, that technology is like 40 years old. It's now reaching our clinics, right? Mm. But then uh, doctors who are on illness medicine uh, essentially um, are geared towards uh, diagnosis and treatment of disease. Rather, in, in other words, we're geared towards repair. And Absolutely. I don't. That's driven me crazy for a long time. Yeah, I, and I've, I... I've, me being who I am, as you can imagine, <laughs> I've constantly been like, well, how, you know, and it's the same with psychology. It's like, how can we go for better you know, how can we make how can we optimize you know I don't want yeah <laughs> so i i said well you know i think so my analogy there uh or the metaphor that i use is your your indicators in your car right at the time that we were training we didn't have the proper indicators uh for um you know for um Detecting your tire pressure or detecting, uh, you know, that your oil is low, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And that's illness medicine. He doesn't have those gauges. But now we do. And uh, and that's by, uh, you know, there's a, a thing called the human metabolome database that does that. Um, and, uh, and, and we have all the metabolites, uh, being cataloged, right. Including the toxins that are in system. And I said, well, it's time to put this in. Right. And, uh, so instead of diagnosing and treating disease, I said, let's detect and correct imbalances. But you see here, um, uh, Jason, I've never strayed far from my network centric point of view, uh, because what's necessary when you want to to shift into health, for example, is to take a look at the body, not as a person, but you have to go closer, right? You have to take a look at it as an ecosystem of cells that's working together. 
And when you look beyond the eyes, nose, ears, throat, and just go inside the cell, you see that they're doing something different, right? Mm -hmm. And they are, you know, since the cell is fundamentally composed of a nucleus, mitochondria, cytoplasm, you know, cell membrane, etc., no one's taking care of the fundamental health of those. And I said, well, it's time because we now have a, me- um, a way of detecting and correcting imbalances. So instead of diagnosing and treating disease, I created health optimization medicine for uh, detecting and correcting uh, imbalances uh, right now at the level of metabolome. And people have challenged me uh, and they said, um, well, Ted, you know, what about subtle energy and all of these uh, other things? And I said, if you can give me a, me- a reliable method of detection of subtle energy, I said, as of I said, as of now, I said, we have so many of these gadgets that say, oh, this is a chi generator and this and that, and it will improve your this and that. I said, give me something measurable. Uh, I said, and uh, so because it is that way that we can put this whole thing under the big tent. I mean, it becomes acceptable in illness medicine. It becomes um, reimbursable with insurance and, and so on, right? Because in the end, you know, it's the it's a patient or the client if they're not sick. You know that should ben- be benefiting from this, right? Yeah, um, I agree. I think you know, in terms of subtle energy, I think that even for me, that's a bit of a non-starter. But I, I think that it, you know, obviously, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit as well, and particularly with the interest that I have. The best that I've come up with in terms of what's measurable is just neurofeedback, right? And particularly under meditation, that's very measurable and can be used to. Um, Correct, I, I think correct for imbalances, as you as you pointed out, potentially, but certainly for for uh, cognitive optimization, and that's something that I have my students do quite a bit, uh, yeah. even with just commercial, even just commercial grade neurofeedback yeah. stuff like the Muse, or and, but there's better ones available now, like the Emotive, and there's obviously um, and then you know professional grade equipment, which is hard to get get access to for most people, but. Um, then there's that, right? So, so that for me is where quantification can really come into um, <clears throat> the more subtle <laughs> terms of things, you know. You, but I'm not looking for chi, you know, <laughs> chi apps or something like yeah, that. Yeah, when 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 uh, I was actually uh, doing this, it's like, uh, in fact, I just had a question from uh, one of my former uh, trainees this morning, and she's an OBGYN who's now practicing uh, health optimization medicine, and. Uh, she said, uh, Dr. Ted, you know, um, can we use um, uh, the, the um, metabolites of the neurotransmitters as a marker? I said, absolutely, right? Because now, before, you used to, you have to bore a hole in the skull and then get a biopsy of the brain, you know, to get neurotransmitter levels. Now you could actually detect the level in the P, correlate it to the level in your plasma, and you have a basically an... an uh, uh, a fair idea of what it looks like in the brain. Um, for example, uh, Jason, you know, for uh, for for people who who um, when you interview them, say they're they say they're uh, not depressed, right? But you obviously know that they're highly stressed out, and you could see that they're using up their serotonin really, really um, uh, such that. Uh, the serotonin uh, uh, metabolites uh, essentially uh, start rising, like drastically, the metabolic, meaning it's being used yeah. like crazy. And you know that that's, uh, that they're actually responding to some, they're trying to deal with something that is emotionally stressful, 
right? And they need, you know, um, you know to boost uh, serotonin levels, etc. Even if the metabolite shows that it's very high, so. These are the kinds of things that you can find out in 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 those things, and in uh, as being someone who has always worked through the brain and has always been fascinated by it, you know, um, uh, a lot of the uh, the uh, things that that uh, have fascinated me about it is uh, actually. Uh, in in terms of the consciousness, right? Uh, how, it, and that's that's why I was very interested in meditation and so on. And uh, it's because of the focus that you can get from meditation, right? Uh, uh, the uh, the if you are looking at basically. Um, concentrative types of meditation, not the contemplative types of meditation, then you could develop, uh, it's a skill. I tell, I tell my students it's a skill yeah, you know, that you, you could develop uh, fairly quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And that's, that's what I tell everyone also. People have uh, often can have a very precious idea about, about spirituality or whatever, whatever they want to call it, just because yeah. it, it's just, they, they associate it with feel good aphorisms and candles and things like that. And I tell people, no, it's a, it's it's just like going to the gym, particularly meditation. It's something that can be built up that anybody can do that doesn't rely on your special status as a person or some something like that. So yeah, I I I, I, uh, I call it a mental gym. You go to your physical yeah, exactly. gym to work out. You know, you go to your mental gym, right? And uh, if you have if you have uh, anabolic steroids for your physical gym, you know, your psychedelics are your um, you know meditation steroids. Nootropics, yeah. <laughs> psychedelics, yeah. A yeah, there, control, but yeah. There was a uh, one of the most difficult questions that I got when presenting health administration medicine is uh, actually came from a psychiatrist who asked me, "Okay, Doctor Ted, your your model is very simple. You know, detect and correct imbalances. I get that. You know, um, uh, you're, it's like one, two, three. You know, you measure the metabolites, you compare them to the ranges when you were between twenty one and thirty years old because that's your optimal level, right? Mm -hmm. And then you bring them back to those levels. Okay, fine. He said it's it's easy. Sounds said, it's a good sales pitch. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's easy. He said, uh, but he said, how do you include, uh, you know, taking care of the spirituality of a person? And I said, we're dealing with um, metabolites and molecules here, right? And said, we know that DMT is the spirit molecule. So I said, uh, essentially, a person who lacks spirituality is just exhibiting the DMT deficiency syndrome. So, so just give that, the person that, DMT. That, that sounds like a good way that, that coining a syndrome sounds like a good way to get a legal DMT prescription. So I'm, I'm all for that. Uh, oh, I have DMT deficiency. Oh, well, I uh, just hop down to your local pharmacy and pick up this uh, prescription. Uh, healthcare covers it. You know, it's like, yeah, it sounds good to me. Uh, uh, brilliant, Dr. Ted. <laughs> I see what you're doing there. But, but, um, 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 see, um, when, when, um, I like, I like the way you phrase it, uh, in your interview, you know, the swim is someone who isn't me is, uh, oh, yeah. you know, <laughs> oh, that's, from, that's from, uh, that's from, uh, certain forums on the internet. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> someone, someone I met. So, so, someone someone, I met. so yeah, someone who I met, some of me, someone who isn't me right in the forums. Um, but, uh, someone who I met, um, you know, um, no, <laughs> no, actually, um, I've taken uh, pharmawaska, uh, ayahuasca, and uh, I was uh, so, it was so toxic to me uh, because... Uh, you wait, you I, said ayahuasca or, or pharmawaska? Ayahuasca, ayahuasca. Like uh, actually, standard, yeah. straight up. It, because yeah. um, um, I used the uh, harmala alkaloids and it was uh, really uh, uh, 
these are, are non-reversible MAO inhibitors, right? And uh, it turns out that um, my, when I got my uh, gene profile, I really, if you want to kill me, you know, you can give me, you know, a bottle of Zantac and I'd be dead. You know, I, oh. I cannot, I cannot detoxify uh, these okay. things uh, very quickly. So I have an enzymatic uh, deficiency. And I said, there must be a better way of doing this and introducing uh, this to people who might want it. And um, being uh, trained in pharmacology, you know, um, uh, 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 someone who I met actually uh, extracted the um, the uh, DMT crystals in his kitchen. Okay. And then uh, using a reversible MAOI uh, as a drug that which I found was, it's actually um, not sold in the US, but it's sold in Europe and elsewhere. Um, you know, I was able to, uh, to get a good titration and I, uh, b- basically created what's called a pharmawaska regimen, you know? Uh, so it's, 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 it's sort of like mimics the thing, but being a pharmacologist, I don't, I like to know exactly what's going to my system and people hate that because, you know, in cannabis, they like the entourage effect and, and so on and so forth. But no, I'd like mine to be a, a lot more controlled and, uh, take out a lot of the cultural, um, uh, stories that are woven into the practice, right? That's because a great the- point right there, I really agree with that. I mean, it's like, you know, I, well, I will preface this by saying that I'm not even particularly that interested in psychedelics anymore. And, and, but I think that, um, cause I have, I, I was for someone I met was for so long. Um, I think that, um, but that point right there about extracting the cultural stories is really important because obviously previously there was the hippie yeah. kind of, thing on it, which I actually think is in, in some ways a lot better than the current current cultural narrative. Well, now it's getting a lot more accepted, uh, accepted but now yeah. the narrative around it is kind of the Tim Ferriss narrative and nothing against him. I love Tim Ferriss, but, but the kind of the narrative of like, how can we use this to work better in a corporate environment, you know, with yeah. my dosing LSD and things like this, where it's like, man, that is so that that's a step down in my opinion. Well, it's good if it gets a broader adoption. But I think that, you know, we, I, I agree with you where we need to look at these things about. Yeah, I, I, I'm, 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 you know, I'm, I'm looking more, I, you know, I, I, uh, I don't like to put in like, what does this really do in, in, in terms of a more of a, a Sasha Shogun type of curiosity? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, that, that kind of curiosity, like, what does this sure. really do? And without yeah. the, the story or the baggage around right. it, right? Um, and uh, because this, this, the stories are incredible. Um but the 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 use the use of it, uh, I think the the use of psychedelics uh, at full dose, uh, I, I I think is that you get to experience what it is to be egoless or selfless for a uh, for a period of time, right? And then now you know what that feels like. Now you can bring that into meditation, where you could feel that your ego. Uh, or yourself arising, right? Um, and uh, uh, self I call the ego a self-referential system because the ego as a word has a lot of connotations, right? And um, and and the, the, the th- people use it as a noun, whereas it's a process, right? It's a selfing process, the self, you know, the, the self point. So I use it as a self-referential system. And what you do, you know, for me, it's like, well, that's the, the you know, one of the, 
greatest values, I think, of psychedelics are taken at full doses that you experience what it is to uh, be egoless or selfless, right? But at the same time, that also changes the contents of your consciousness, right? You see all these visions and, and so on and so forth. Um, for me, that is actually a drawback, right? Because you should be able to maintain that kind of awareness or um, be awake, so to speak, or or uh, uh, have this awareness of awareness in normal waking life. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you should be able to see, for example, it's a good exercise to do that. So you know what it felt to be like when your self-referential system begins to rise. Yeah. And in fact, yeah. uh, Jason, I love, I I love that language. Yeah. I just want to, I just want to call it like this. So you're saying self-referential system begins to arise. That's, that's great. Yeah. And so yeah. when you say self-referential system, it's basically your, your, you, it's almost as if the, the the linguistic process in your mind is thinking about itself as an independent entity from the other things around. And from the other things, yes, and, yes. and that, that's the the that's the inherent process that is the quote unquote ego, but that it's not a thing. It's it's, it's, it's a process. It's, the way I look at it, Jason, it's, it's really very simple. It's it's, it's easy for you to get uh, because uh, you know um, you, you have this clarity uh, of the way you. Well, you that's why I wanted to, I wanted to talk yeah. a, bit, a bit more so we can we can sure. Talk. Yeah, I'd like I'd like to. Um, actually just say a bit historically I told you in my in my research and I was looking for uh, is there a network that says now I feed now I mate now I move right and turns out that I, I couldn't find such a network and I thought that was consciousness as I was looking at no that was actually you know I, that was my big error there I was looking at the self right that the self-referential <laughs> system the one that says or has the feeling that says now I want to feed I want to move now I want to mate and so going back now and looking at all the developments in uh, in uh, where the self is situated, where the self-referential is situated, you know, you've heard a lot about the default mode network <clears throat> as the uh, most possible seat of the ego, right? And yeah. um, and it, uh, they're they're finding that psychedelics loosen that. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah there is uh, psychedelics actually decrease decrease the blood flow. To okay. that area, okay. so uh, for me, it's more like uh, it's dampened down, right? Uh, because it's like a central uh, conductor, right? It it inhibits uh, many stimuli, so that you are able to focus uh, in this physical dimension. This is where where you focus on. Um, so the way I, I see it is actually very simple. If you have like a a, a series of uh, of uh, lights, right, in a circle, and uh, you know, there's one light blinking and another light blinking and another light blinking, and then they go in synchrony and you finally see a circle, right? And that's that's, that's the self-referential system, right? Uh, you know, when it's not, when it's not uh, doing its symphony, it doesn't exist, right? It's just a process whereby it arises, it fades away, it rises, fades away. In fact, Fadi newest book on uh, multiple selves, right? Uh, we have so many selves that just go on and, and uh, you know, and off and on and off, depending Absolutely. on, it's, uh, you know, depending, I call them roles. I, I call them, these are our egoic roles or self-referential roles, you know, Jason as the interviewer, Jason's a magician, uh, you know, um, you know, Jason as the one waiting for the bank teller, you know, Jason, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know and, and, and so on. It's like, these are roles and just being able to, um, uh, you know, one of the, one of the things uh, early on that I realized is that just being able to recognize that you are actually thinking while you're waiting, you know, it's just like, oh, these are the thoughts that arise while I'm waiting. And that recognition 
I, I think is is already a sufficient switch to wake up, you know, to to what I call a meta awareness, right? Absolutely. Um, I think it'd be good to maybe <clears throat> talk about that a bit and and distinguish. I'm interested in your thoughts about this to distinguish the two different things here, because on on one hand, we're talking about the self-referential process of the ego, which is basically linguistic, right? It's like linguistic self-reference. And then at least that's how I I look at it. It's the nature of it is language. And then um, as if you're talking to yourself, as if you're another person, which then concretizes the idea that there's this other concrete self in there that you're talking to. But that that is in a sense, self-awareness, but then then we talk about if you want to talk about more awakened states where you're self-aware but more or less in silence right it's yeah, it's, 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 your, it's your, called your awareness right but they're both self-referential processes perhaps i don't um, know how do we yeah. those? okay let's let, let, uh, this is just a way i think about it right it's just one of the older ones who did studies on consciousness i think one of the things that we have failed to define here, and there is no definition, right, is uh, that of consciousness, right? We, uh, you know, uh, Robin Carhart Harris in his papers uh, has the same definition as I did when I presented mine, you know, uh, 30 years ago, which is that which goes away uh, when you go into a deep dream with a sleep or we are under, under anesthesia and, you know, returns when you wake up. Which I would disagree and, with, but you know, yeah, you know, that's his definition. Another state of consciousness, you know, this is in the the Hindu or the the the, Ved, uh, the Vedantic model. It's like, well, this is just it's just another phase of consciousness, right? That's like saying the sun goes away when it's on the other side of the earth. You know, um, there. <laughs> no, but th- for me, uh, Jason, I call that the medical definition of consciousness. Right, okay. that's a medical definition of consciousness, meaning um, uh, you're uh, as essentially. Um, if you're looking at the medical definition of consciousness, then Mark Solms, you know, just I think just published his book where uh, he basically uh, says that, um, you know, uh, consciousness is uh, basically essentially three, three things. Um, one is uh, uh, essentially interoceptive, uh, which is a sleep-wake kind of thing, right? And the other one, and in, in medicine, when we say you're awake, that's it. Right. And and then the next one is extra receptive, um, uh, meaning you're responding to signals in the environment. And in medicine, uh, we call that alert. Right. And the next part part of it is abstractive. And uh, you say, what's your name? My name is Jason. Right. So you're and what day is it? And so uh, you're oriented. So in medicine, we encapsulate that uh, definition of consciousness as alert, awake and oriented. Right. And that's medical. Uh, okay. uh, so there's the Glasgow comma scale and so on and so forth. Um, but if you go away from uh, from uh, medical definitions of consciousness, right, and into into consciousness itself and what are the theories behind it, you know, in fact, there are two competing theories that are being um, uh, investigated right now, where you know there's a ten million dollar price, right, uh, for uh, uh, that's that's being given out by the Templeton Foundation, and yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah w- w- it's very easy to explain this. Uh, uh, the one is what's called the global workspace theory of consciousness, right? Where you have inputs, your sensory inputs, goes to a certain workspace, and as they're being parceled out to these units of the brain. Uh, where they should go and process these things, it gives rise to consciousness. And the way I view this, this is an emergent view of consciousness, 
right? So um, it emerges from, from the information processing system. Uh, the other one is called the integrated information theory. And uh, this is, this is a, a little bit more, uh, a little bit harder to explain, but it's something like if you have an input to a certain network, right? And the network can feed back upon itself to cause a change in state, right? Mm -hmm. So you experience consciousness. And so this one actually has um, a lot more implication because it says that consciousness is inherent, uh, inherent, right? In, in a system, it's just a matter of scale. So a thermostat would have a different level of consciousness to, you know, to us, you know, because of the number of uh, networks that can go feedback loops. If they if they don't feedback on each other and they don't change state, then you know there's less information and therefore uh, uh, conscious. However, um, uh, you know there are there are other theories of consciousness, uh, uh, but uh, like the you know first order uh, consciousness and the higher order uh, theories. Uh, but the interesting thing about uh, the integrated information theory is that it's been blasted because. Uh, you know, is an atom conscious or uh, is a bat conscious, you know, or, or uh, and when you look at it, it becomes uh, rapidly panpsychic, right? Is, is consciousness uh, uh, basically a fundamental property of the universe? Think it's how, just a matter of that works. <laughs> right, right. And, and uh, to what, and, and, and for me, it's, uh, it's more like uh, when, when looking at this, it's like, yeah, you know, my argument 30 years ago is like, you don't know that a rock is conscious because you cannot become a rock, right? And the other thing that we seem to, and, and this is a big um, uh, a thing that I think is being neglected, is that we don't know where to put life in and its definition. Uh, right. I, that's, I, that's, I was going to say, I mean, th this definition of consciousness obviously is very friendly and leaves the door open to artificial intelligence, particularly yeah. things like evolutionary algorithms, which can, yeah. uh, you know, change their, you know, our self-referential in a sense and can change themselves. Yeah. Um, my point, my earlier point about sleeping state is that I think that we have a very, very much a bias towards the waking conscious state we, we uh, and thinking and, and that in itself is part of the issue. And, and the, the, the point I was making about Vedanta is that their their model of phases of consciousness is simply um, the waking state, sleeping or waking state, dreaming state, sleeping state, deep sleep, as you mentioned, which I don't think is non-conscious. I think it's another type of consciousness. Yogananda thought that was the ideal state to be in uh, in meditation or in sleep. So so sleep, dreaming, waking, dreaming, sleep, and then the meta level, which is self. Uh, silent self-awareness, which the goal for, as you know, I mean, the goal for Vedantic and Buddhist meditators of, in, of the deepest sense is to, is to unify the thread of consciousness of meta-awareness between all three. So it's uninterrupted. So they're in the Turiya state, I think is, is what it's called. Yeah. yeah. So, oh, you know, um, I, I think we should go uh, on a more fundamental, you know, you already discussed, you know, uh, um, basically an entire semester's course in uh in in uh, Advaita uh, Vedanta, but uh, the uh, simple to me. I mean, just waking, <laughs> sleeping, dreaming. I mean, or and then aware. I mean, not not too complicated. But <laughs> no, no, no. Um, um, uh, Jason, I think in in uh, if you take a look at it from, uh, I always you know I'm looking at it since I'm a scientist and a doctor and all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. um, if you look at it from um, uh, philosophical point of view, uh, essentially, uh, you could see consciousness basically arise from basically two uh, schools of thought, right? Uh, two, 
to promote the philosophy. One is uh, the physicalist, right, uh, or uh, physicalist mon- uh, or the physicalist monism, uh, yeah, as, yeah. as they call it. You know, where everything is uh, basically reducible to you know um, you, what we are and what we do and and so on and so forth. And so a lot of these uh, models that we're testing right now are basically in the reductionist mode uh, because they were in the physical monism. But the other one is called. Uh, uh, idealism, and this is a philosophical idealism, not the idealism as a word as we know it, but uh, idealism where everything is consciousness in the first place, right? Uh, there is no experience that is out of consciousness. So uh, everything that w- which is more uh, Advaita Vedanta, right? Uh, more Dzogchen uh, than yeah, anything I was going to say Dzogchen, and I think this would be a good place to segue into that. I mean, because it seems to me, I know you have a background in in Buddhism and Dzogchen and even Bone, which I really want to talk about because that's the super fun stuff. But um, I think, um, you know, I, I just, in, in listening to you, there's a lot of Buddhist worldview and a lot of the things you're saying, even when you were talking about looking at uh, networks between cells and, and things like that. And uh, your view of the, your, your, even, you know, you're using the word arising, the, the view of the ego as an arising phenomenon. There, there's a lot of Buddhist thought in, in there. And that's, that's often where I come back to as well, just the idea of looking at networks rather than monism, as you're saying, or, or, or reductionism, which I don't think, you know, I think that particularly Western philosophy and science hit a dead end with that, you know, shortly after Descartes. And we've been, you know, slowly absorbing Buddhism ever since uh, on every level. Uh, cultural, uh, scientific, mathematical, even, and, and I think that. Um, well, the yeah. world's major major neuroscientists will disagree there, but okay. okay. Well, tell me about that then, because yeah. I don't. I'm not. I'm. I'm just no, no. the guy that runs the magic school. So, so let me know. No, 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 no. Because they're still looking, right? Uh, they're looking for uh, the neural correlate of consciousness. Okay. Um, and, and that's where the efforts are in in. Um, uh, in the neuroscientific world, right? Yeah, that's where the efforts are. But uh, really, uh, 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 towards finding the physical correlate. Of- yeah, for, yeah. The the where, where's the where's the correlate of uh, of consciousness? And what's the state of that? Where is that at now? I'm I don't uh, it, know. I'm super curious. Yeah, uh, the the state of that is actually with the uh, uh, competition that I, I told you with the ten million dollar prize, the global workspace theory, which assumes that maybe the the um, uh, they will find the uh, activity of the brain will be in the frontal part of the brain at the prefrontal cortex, and the uh, integrated information theory they will find that the major uh, centers. Where does that question. leave animals then who don't have that particularly developed or at all? We're we're just doing humans for now. So, so I'm we'll just, see. It's like, yeah. if you find it in humans, yeah. but not animals. It's like well, yeah, animals th- are th- that's why. Conscious, you know. Yeah, that's that's um that um. That's why uh, 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 the the model for one is uh, basically uh, an information processing model, like the global workspace theory, and the other uh, one is uh, feed uh, uh, feedback and feed forward network uh, for the other. So we're still looking at the network as a substrate of things. But uh, as, as I said, the, the interesting one, uh, which has been uh, pilloried a little bit by some of the major uh, scientists is, uh, uh, you know, uh, integrated information theory because it has some panpsychic uh, panpsychic um, uh, repercussions. And, you know, I, 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 I don't see, <laughs> see, see the, the, but, the, but the whole, the whole uh, thing uh, here, Jason, is, uh, really, for me, it's very simple. I really 
you know, whatever, however the whole thing goes out, whether it's physicalist or idealist and, and so on. Uh, I think, um, uh, for example, in meditation, uh, having the skill of of the awareness of awareness is very useful, mm-hmm. right? You you are aware of being aware. Well, I, it's the goal. It's the at least an initial. It's the initial goal, and that's why I was I wanted earlier. I was hoping to distinguish the awareness of awareness from the self-referential process of the ego, because in a sense, yeah, yeah, okay, self-referential processes, but perhaps at different different levels or, or right. E- 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 yeah, I, I I get you, and that's why I call instead of uh, calling you know in in Dzogchen, you know you have the the sky right uh, the the their favorite meditation I like uh, uh, of uh, of the sky you know and then the clouds are the thoughts and and so on and so forth and even in Buddhism a thought is just one of the senses right they consider it one of the senses that just arise there and um, so essentially when um, um, we have a term for, you know, when I look at you and and uh, you, our eyes lock together more than what is socially acceptable, you know, we begin to have this massive sense of self-awareness, right? That someone is looking at me and so on. And that developed evolutionarily, of course, right? Uh, because of uh, because of our uh, evolution as uh, social, social creatures, you have to have a way of basically... Uh, um, when you abut against uh, something or someone with which you have a relationship, right? Like your job or your significant other or, you know, um, or a memory, you could see that this self-referential system arises because um, I think language is just one component of it. And if you look at it just from a brain standpoint, say, and uh, I, I described it as the circle of lights, right? Uh, that will light up and be in synchrony. Uh, you know, it will pull in from your memory, right? It will pull in from your emotions. It will pull in from your your uh, planning for the future and so on until you have this blinking lights that's all up there. And the way I tell my uh, students to actually um, realize this the happening of the self-referential system booting up is when they wake up in the morning. When they open their eyes and it's newly open, there's a slight disorientation really on where you are. You just take a look, right? Before it actually comes to you that, you know, uh, this is especially prolonged when you've been traveling a lot and you don't know what your city you're in. You open your eyes and you go, right? And and then you see the whole thing constructing itself and it's like, oh, you know, this is where I am. And uh, then you think, oh God, what did I say last night? The worst thing is like, oh God, who is this person beside me? <laughs> <laughs> that can be the best thing too, I mean. My <laughs> um I don't know your name, um, <laughs> um, but 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 anyway, that's that's the self awareness or the ego, the self referential system, right? It has your autobiographical memory and and so on, and it will uh, essentially um, uh, uh, you know pull all of these things. But what uh, what is uh, uh, actually what I call meta awareness, uh, which is in Dzogchen and um, Advaita and so on, is that awareness of awareness and that awareness of awareness. As I tell my students, it's really very simple to um, to experience, right? Even without psychedelics, right? Uh, you know, when no, you ideally have... without psychedelics, you, know, <laughs> you shouldn't need to drive a Mack truck through your consciousness and really get the most so, fundamental thing, you know. Um, well, it's called 
is called ordinary consciousness, right? And, you know, in Buddhism, that's called ordinary consciousness. And I said, you know, in an extreme mm-hmm. of it, uh, I said, here's what happens. I said, when you really absolutely have to pee, and you cannot find a place to pee. And then you finally are able to pee. I said, the initial part when the stream comes out, you're not thinking of anything. You're just experiencing all of you're totally aware. There is no self in that. You're right? yeah. Be- Because, you know, um, you know the, the, the awareness of awareness for me is really freedom from the illusion of the self, right? Hmm. Uh, yeah. That's, yeah, yeah. that's how that's how I define um uh waking up or being awake or or the the meta awareness uh as i call it is a freedom from the illusion of the self and at a particular point in time you're basically from the self it's just like you're just really attentive towards your relief and everything else is going on there's no yeah. self going on in there the, the, big, another, another ex- think the big revelation for me was always that you, the, it was not only that is that you don't actually need the self to function and in fact the, you function better without it without the constant nagging self-referential internal yes. dialogue once that's away it doesn't detract because people particularly with psychedelics they're afraid their their initial fear when they're very new or with meditation is oh what if i lose myself Right. Well, what turns out if you lose yourself, if you do it correctly with long term meditation and not in some a drug experience that you can't handle at that moment, that um, uh, it it actually increases your your ability to function. I think the same as athletes uh, who are trained. So they do things without thinking. That's that's where all human genius comes from, I think, is, is when people get out of their own way and it just they allow it to arrive. Yeah. Um. Uh, however, um, we are uh, we are programmed out of that, right? And sure. the, yeah. the, uh, the analogy that, um, or, or 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 the yeah the the uh, example that I like to set is you know um, um, what has been said as you know as a child, you know um, we uh, we actually have this open awareness, right? Uh, we are the whole world is part of us. And, you know, we don't know where our, our boundaries end and, and, you know, the world begins and so on and so forth. But then you, know, you start looking at yourself in a mirror and then your parents said, that's you. It's like, you know, then you're basically putting on this image that this is you, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the development of your self-referential system. And um, so so um, essentially uh, what you're doing is, uh, you know, when, when you are going in back into your meta-awareness is actually removing that, you know, which has been placed there, you know, and, and uh, recognizing that you are actually uh, the one that's, uh, one that's free, right? The one that's free from the, from the self-illusion. And, um, you know, I think much of the uh, part where um, uh, people... Uh, stumble on which which is uh, i think easy to remedy is when you keep on using an ego as a noun you're gonna stumble on right but when you say it's a process like it's a self-referential system it's a processing system then suddenly it becomes just something that arises because of the functioning our functioning and being able to see how it arises etc allows us to make better decisions uh, allows us to, to to be less reactive to things and you know and uh and and this is uh what i think is necessary for you know for me for my understanding of of uh uh, uh clinging and aversion right uh, the desire yeah. and and so on it's like you can because you have developed this meta awareness and it's a skill right it's it's basically you're shifting your identity 
away from your self-awareness into the meta-awareness. It's just like, no, that's not me. This is actually me, right? And when you shift that, you begin to see your desires go. It's like, oh, and then it's going to melt away and your aversion going is going to melt away. And, and then pretty soon you, you're seeing all of this aggregation of, of desires and aversions, et cetera, et cetera. It's like, and you begin to, to uh, see you know, what sort of mental habits you have formed over time. Right? Yeah, that's perfect. I think that's perfectly, that's perfect. That's perfectly articulated, right? And I, I think that it also, you know, um, this is, there's so much that particularly people who are already on the other side of this or are more practiced in this or more familiar with these ideas uh, take for granted. And, and one thing that I want to point out is I think one of the critical things there is the most important part of that process often is not, it's not just well, let me put it this way. In order to get into a position where you are now observing things arise, whether it's the process of the ego or aversion or attachment or, or just emotions or whatever it happens to be, um, you, you by definition have to be outside of that circuit. You have to be in meta-awareness. And that, yeah. that's the critical part because, because now the, the most critical part of that is now your center of gravity that you perceive as yourself is now in that instead of in the processes themselves where you're subject to them, where you think it's you where you're you're uh, caught in the the in the the windstorm you know of all this stuff arising so i think the most critical part is just to get into the meta awareness and then even just like it, you know the, the kind of zen cone of the zen cone nature of some of these practices or encouraging people to even encouraging people to simply observe their thoughts already implicitly pushes them into a meta awareness position and that's the important part i think well, um, you, 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 you know about that study, right, where people uh, were um, in, in an experiment and they were uh, actually, uh, uh, you know, you get left alone with your thoughts and more than 50% of them would rather electrocute themselves. It's than amazing, right? I don't yeah. understand that at all because I've been an introverted person my whole life, but, but I don't understand <laughs> it. Like, for instance, like, you know, in L.A., like I would go to like um, uh, sensory deprivation uh, yeah. places. And I would talk to the people there who were all very much like on this level. And they, they would say like, you would be amazed. Well, this is particularly LA, which is perhaps the most extroverted city on the planet. But they would say like, you would amaze how terrified people, like people have never spent half an hour by themselves without chatter or phone or other people, you know, or being, yeah. everyone wants to be on stage in LA, but it's like, people are, uh, and that's bizarre to me because it's like, it's so natural to me to be and always has meditation or not. I was always a bookworm kid, uh, uh, you know, and I was, you know, born in a family of intellectuals. So it was like, you know, I was always within in my own internal world, meditation or not. So that's just like alien to me. But I think you're, I think you're right. It's like most people are terrified of being alone. Like they say the number one fear is public speaking, but I think that people are more scared of <laughs> being with themselves. Yeah, people that are... Uh, you right there. You know, I, I, uh, people don't like to be left alone with their thoughts. And and, and there's uh, something in particular I actually like to emphasize here. You know, um, one of the cru crucial things that, that uh, happened to us in evolution is the development of language. And our development of language actually uh, either was for the good of us and 
fucked us up in a lot of ways, really, in being able to observe ourselves, right? Um, right. For Language example, virus from outer space. <laughs> for example, one of the experiences that I have when I am in in meditation, right, is just observing the chatter, and you you just know that oh, that's how my brain works, right? That's that's the chatter right there, and. What happens is when when the ego engages is when it gets into the meaning of what it's saying, right? Instead of just hearing the sound that it's chattering, you, when you start engaging in what it's saying, the ego is beginning to basically get you back to yeah. the, the self-awareness. That's like and, quicksand. It's like quicksand, you know, fighting yeah. quicksand, yeah. I like the way that uh, Sam Harris actually um, uh, presents this. He says, uh, you know, um, when you are actually uh, meeting a, a dear friend of yours and the friend of yours goes, you know, uh, I can't believe you did that to me. It's like, <laughs> right? And then you go, what? What did I do? And at that particular moment, everything is self-awareness, right? Yeah. It's like there is no space around the self-awareness, you know, and from from you know you're an experienced meditator etc and uh i don't know how this will uh, resonate with uh with uh, with your listeners but i think uh you will understand what i mean when i go oh um here's an organic robot that's actually spewing out something right and and the, the way i look at it is you see there's a program running you know and i am understanding what it's saying and you know here 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 are the list of responses that are coming up for me without actually engaging or having my whole emotion and everything else involved right uh in it it's like you're able to keep it with um as a psychiatrist before teased me he said you have a mild uh you know uh dissociative disorder and and you know it's it's like there's a this but still you have empathy right uh, you, you know you know that they, that you have to address etc but your whole attention doesn't get eaten up you know, by the meaning of what's being said. Rather, there's a space around what's being said and saying that here's another person that's running his or her program and saying this to me, right? And, and um, you know, here is the possible things that um, uh, uh, how I can basically not react to it, but respond to it, right? And in fact, the way I, I uh, teach this is, you know, if you just want to say something, count to three. So, you know, it's like thousand one, thousand two, thousand three. Just keep your mouth shut. You know, so instead of instead of reacting, you're actually responding. And I keep on yeah. telling telling them the difference between reaction and response. Reaction is that your entire attention is gobbled up by your self referential system. Yeah, right? I often I I agree. I I often and I I often when I'm in my best moments, I strive to I or or I would like to even take it further, which is that I think that. Language itself is a um, a bounded system, right? It's like you're talking about running programs. It's like, well, if you're running the code of whatever language, whether the English language or any other language, right? You're if you're running. This was always William Burroughs' point, which I think is so critical, which is that it's not the meaning, it's not the meaning that is expressed within the symbolic set. It's running the symbolic set at all. So if you're whether you're talking with somebody else or talking to yourself using English, you've already accepted of a, a finite set of responses yes. and there's, there's and there's there's standard responses con that are conditioned into that not only by the language but by the entire canon of all 
Western uh, or, or excuse me, all media used within the English language, whether it's movies or books or just your interactions with other people throughout your whole life using that language, which is why people's brains change so radically when they learn a different language. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, you're, the whole Burroughs whole point, what you're talking and, and what you were just saying about, you know, language was a, a good and a bad period of development. It's like the Tower of Babel and uh, the, the Garden of Eden. And this was always the great, the great goal of the Western magicians as well. It's like John D and all throughout the Renaissance, as you know, like their goal was to get back to the Ur language, like the pri the primal language. But I think that even that, um, you know, I think that it's to get to a pre-linguist or a, a post-linguistic state perhaps. And this is what meditation does so effectively. It, it gets us out of not just the ego because the ego is just a, uh, a subset of how one uses language with oneself, right? And all the assumptions that are carried. So the assumptions are not, the assumption is not just that there's another self listening. The assumptions are all baked into the computer code you're running to do so in the first place, which is the language, right? Which has, is not neutral. Yeah, it's, so. it's not at all. Um, and uh, uh, many, many years ago, um, as you know, uh, I, I grew up, um, in in the Philippines, and okay. you know, I was I was curious about the blues, right? Uh, American music, the blues, and you know, there was no equivalent um, uh, in the country, and that actually uh, I very much want to visit the Philippines. Oh, um, I have a lot of friends from there. I grew up with. I know a lot of people, even when I'm from where I grew up. I very I want to visit the, and I particularly there's a lot of stuff I want to see there, particularly the whale sharks. Uh, well, consider yourself invited, Jason. Oh, thank you. Do you, um, you, you live there now? Uh, no, um, my home base is Washington D.C., uh, okay. and uh, I haven't gone. I I practice uh, health optimization medicine there uh, four times a year, uh, thirty days each, uh, basically a month every quarter. So I go there um, for thirty days um, every quarter. Uh, so about four months there. And then um, some of the time I spend in Europe, um, you have to keep your roots, right? In terms of your educational roots uh, and connections. And then uh, part of the time moving out here in the U.S. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, what I, I used to say is that heaven for me is uh, uh, spending more than two weeks in a single time zone. Um, but now with, and people will hate me for this because, you know, with the pandemic, I couldn't move, right? So it's like, <laughs> So Ted, are you in heaven? Um, but you know, you know, actually, I am. It's nice to be grounded for a while. Yeah. You know, I slack before. I, I used to, uh, you know, um, it, before the pandemic, I, I slacked. I, I basically was just reading one book a week. You know, when the pandemic set in, I was back to one book a day. Boom, boom, boom. It was just fun. Yeah. yeah. But um, as as you were saying about language, uh, what's in, in fact, some of my initial studies uh, in artificial intelligence were in language, you know, counting the, you know, the ZIF uh, counter where you count the number of letter A's and letter E's and the occurrence of certain words uh, and so on. You know, um, those those were some of the things that um, I was uh, trying to do when beginning to understand it. And then taking a look at uh, essentially what the uh, effectively looking at studies from other countries because uh, the U.S. is basically very America-centric, 
right? In terms yeah, of its to, medicine. To, to it, it, yeah, yeah. In, in terms, in, in fact, I, I uh, encourage my medical students to go out in the world because U.S. medicine is not medis- is not the whole of medicine. You almost right? said U.S. medicine is not medicine. <laughs> I did. No, it's, it's, yeah. no uh, <laughs> U.S. medicine is basically acute medicine. If you have, if you have trauma like a, a, uh, that needs surgery or you have acute infections, you're perfect. But when you're in chronic diseases, you know, you better look elsewhere or have a, have an enlightened physician with you. But what I was um, uh, looking at there is uh, taking a look at, uh, for example, how um, uh, all of these different um, uh, cultures were actually like, for example, when I was, uh, you, you know, when I was uh, uh, basically two years uh, doing a fellowship in in uh, in Paris and and traveling there, etc. The children are quadrilingual, um, you know, and you know, and you could see the the their the grasp of things are so much different, and the, the the point of view is so much wider, right? And for me, I attributed that like, yeah, it has a wider sense of of neural connections and and so on that, that you know that can travel and That's can. Why see. Europeans laugh at us also because we literally don't know about anything outside of no, I say we, but most Americans don't know more than one language and don't know about anything that happens outside of America. It's it's well, people. Well, well, you know, um, you know, one of one of the things that that actually shocked me is, uh, you know, that advertisement where there was sushi and and the guy said, "You better cook that." But and anyway, uh, <laughs> when was this? What was it? It's it's an it's an advertisement. Um, it's a common. Uh, uh, it's a, it's an ad. I I I, I don't. I think it's still playing sometimes, yeah. but I, I I don't remember. I recall that, but I recall that. But that kind of thing, it's supposed to be funny, but for me, it isn't right. right. Um, but but uh, that it shoehorns your it shoehorns your perspective, right? It it, it shoehorns your perspective into um, one set or one lens by which you cannot pull out. And what I tell my students really is that, you know, I've been mentoring uh, students and I'm learning from them tremendously. I said, you know, perspective is like a diamond. You know, there are so many facets of it. You know, you can shove yourself into one, like the Western or the American perspective, but make sure you pull your head out of it and go and take a look at another facet and shove it, uh, uh, you know, shove it yourself and take a look again in there and see what you find and pull out. But all in all, is that you're looking at a gem. Uh, in fact, the the poem for for my book uh, that I published was "The Blind Man and the Elephant." Right? Uh, you know, uh, you know, someone sees it as a rope, someone sees it as a tree, someone uh, treats it as a snake, and so on. And I think in meta awareness, you're actually able to see the entire elephant, right? And you're able to see the entire jewel, right? Uh, and you're also able to see that you're actually viewing the world in various lenses. It's sort of like all these lenses are coming up, uh, you know, in in the in in this uh, sphere of uh, in the sphere of awareness, and you know, uh, for me, your 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 uh, your meta awareness, uh, as, as you know, I agreeing with you, uh, your meta awareness for me is like the most for me is the most important thing there is, right? If we can equate like meta awareness to what they call consciousness, you know, in in a big sense, then. It's for, for me, it's really the, it, what determines the quality of your life, right? Whether or not you're craving or averse to something, et cetera, et cetera. It's all manifested in there, right? And as you said, you know, the self is not necessary to, to, uh, to be able to do that. But being able to engage the self or to, to being, you know, Jason who is going to play the role of 
X, you know, knowing that you're going to play the role of X, like when Dr. Ted plays the role of physician, plays the role of teacher, plays the role of this, knowing that you are playing those roles with that recognition and awareness makes a fundamental difference with the quality of your life. Yeah, absolutely. And and that for me is where, um, you know, true magic comes back in, not in the superstitious sense, but, you know, it's like, it's one thing to be able to, um, enter into meta awareness and stay there for long periods of time until it's entrained, which is, I suppose, the monastic experience or simply the long-term meditation experience. But it's, uh, then you can, then you can start having fun, which is putting on all these different masks and being aware that you're playing a role, even if you're doing it to, uh, get people's goat, you know, it's like, even if you're doing it to, to, to rile people up by confronting their own, you know, contradictory beliefs, which is where I always get in trouble by doing that, you know, uh, particularly on social media, but, but yeah, you know, uh, that's where the the ritual masks come in. You're Jason, you know, um, I I don't know, your monastically trained people here might really punch me on this one. (laughs) You know, monastic, monastic, (laughs) monastic training is a, is a, uh, is a cop out, right? Because when you separate yourself from the rest of the world, it is easy. You know, things are easy when you're not in a monastery. I mean, God knows I have been in one. So, you know, it, it's very easy. But when rubber meets the road, yes. man, that's the real test. And uh, in fact, there's a joke, right? The real test of your enlightenment is, you know, go see your family for Thanksgiving. See yeah, how I fast. <laughs> I, absolutely. And, and I think, no, you're right. And I agree with you. And I think that I do think that the monastic experience uh, is important as a stage. Absolutely. I mean, you've got to you've got to abstract yourself from your social relations also for a period of time in order to become clear about what's you and what's not and 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 enter that enter the stream and enter the process and and all of that. But and eventually you have to come down from the mountain and that might be leaving the monastic experience. It might be leaving behind all the training wheels and trappings of whatever uh, tradition it was that you were studying within and, and doing the world. And that's what I forced myself to do in my life. Cause I, I very easily could have done the opposite and it's too, it, but I realized that I was just being a scaredy cat. I was afraid of jumping off the diving board because you don't, you also don't know, um, how you don't know how real this stuff is until it comes into contact with everyone with with the the unenlightened broken vast uh, mass of the world you know and 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 also it's like well it, it, there's also a level where it's like great so you're self-aware like so what like everyone else is to a certain extent also it could be if they stopped and wanted to it's like well but what have you done like what have you done for other people like what what is the point and i think that it doesn't, it, but it, we also need to, I think, resist the messianic thing, which is the, uh, there's also this temptation, particularly when you're in that monastic experience to go out and say, I am going to enlighten everyone now. I'm going to go out and, and change the world. And it's like, well, no, you're not, because uh, that's not the, the way of things and nor, nor should it be. But uh, you can maybe use your talents to do something helpful yeah. for people, you know? I mean, like, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm more, uh, I'm, I'm more of the, uh, you know, co-opted stoic saying, you know, in that regard, you know, uh, do what you can with what you have where you yeah. are. So, yeah. um, for example, in in setting up, I said, what's wrong with medicine today? It's we're too disease-oriented, illness-oriented, and we're not health-oriented. I said, can I do something here, right? And so that's why I started my nonprofit. I mean, over I started it over a decade ago. Yeah, you know, and it's not being attached to the, you know, for me, this is all about fun and learning. 
if I'm able to move the needle just a little bit, you know, by using the bifurcation point, like just pulling a small lever, you know, to to shift, you know, um, to into health and away from disease, if if it takes, it takes. If it doesn't, it doesn't. It's not time, right? But you're doing what you can with what you have where you are. That's and, what everyone and, just has to do, I think. Just do what, what's in front of them, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, and but, but the thing is, I think the 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 uh, as I said, the uh, for me, uh, the best magic is uh, for at least for me, right? Is uh, um, ataraxia. Uh, or minimal perturbability, right? Uh, it's like, uh, I, 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 and this is just me. I don't like tidal waves of joy and neither do I like deep whirlpools of sadness. I'm okay with gentle waves. And as you know, uh, there's been an accusation and it's probably true that when you meditate, much as you're less responsive or reactive to negative emotions, you're also going to be less reactive to positive emotions. I said, I'll take that. <laughs> I said, I'll take that. I'm not, that's, yeah, that's, I mean, the other side of that, there's always a hangover, you know? It's like, <laughs> you, you act like you're at Disneyland all the time. I mean, you know, first of all, it's annoying for other people to watch. And, and the other is there's going to be a hangover, you know? It's, that's, um, yeah, but I think that, I, I think that just, uh, I don't know if that's true, though, I'll say. I think that there's a, you know, I mean, particularly because because then you also have to ask, well, what you know, what are we measuring by? What's people's definition of happiness? And I think particularly in in such a media saturated right. time in America, it's like uh, whether America or anywhere. I mean, people, you know, their definition of happiness is like this ridiculous performative uh, yeah, you know, outbursts of joy. Like Jim, I'm so happy. Like you know, jump like Tom Cruise jumping on the couch, you know, on the Oprah Show or whatever that was, like things like that. Or it's like that's. That that for me is not happiness. That's a manic episode. You know, I think that my happiness is 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 just a. It's like the sun coming shining in your life. You know, it's like a solid. Yeah, for me, it's yeah. it's, it's it's dynamic equanimity. I think is the way I would define my my personal definition of happiness. When people uh, ask me, you know, I want to be happy. I said, "What's your definition of happiness?" Right. Uh, and I said, because that will determine exactly, you know, uh, how happy or sad you will be. So I said, uh, for me, it's a, a, a dynamic equanimity. Um, you know, uh, you know, meditation is known to decrease your your the sensitivity of your amygdala or your fear center. Right. Uh, uh, so you're you're less reactive to negative things. Um, and it also increases your your um, your uh, neocortical thickness. Right. Uh, even to older age. So you see all of this physical or neuroscientific uh, uh uh, advantages, right, uh, to that. But for me, it's more like the stability that it brings to you in being able to separate what you need from what you want, right? And that's a fundamental thing uh, that I start with when I teach students is, you know, do you need that or do you want that? You know, is it a need or is it a want? You know, because uh, those are two separate things. And being able to see whether or not that's, you know, why are you grasping at that? And, you know, why are you averse to that? Right. And a lot of, a lot of, um, uh, I, I know that a lot of uh, magical systems would be, um, you know, you break a boundary, right. In order to, to, uh, to gain the expansiveness and, and, uh, the energy from it. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing another book and it's more slow going, 
And um, I looked at your chapter on uh, your references on Alistair Crowley and all of that, because I'm, I really am trying to, um, to see, you know, what are, what are the practices, you know, that the people have used and um, in order to do this. And I see now this, uh, you know, uh, I don't know if you'll agree with me, but I divided them into two. One is the what I call the uh, bioevolutionary programming. So you go against bioevolutionary programming by living an ascetic life, a life of uh, uh, hmm. celibacy, uh, you know, uh, and so on. And that's going against, you know, your bioevolutionary program. The other one is a sociocultural program. You break the taboos of society, as Alistair Crowley did, or um, uh, or the the agors of the agori uh, of 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 India, for example, and that's a uh, you know, and it's a source of their it's a it's a source of power for them or a source of an expansion of uh, like their consciousness. Yeah, yeah I mean, but that's not just a, that's not just a west that's not just a magical thing. I mean, that's in that you can find that in um, obviously the ta- Buddhist and Hindu tantra. You can find yes. it as you mentioned yes. the agoris yes. masters yes. of it. It's in the yes. Russian Orthodox Church, even you know so. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, but I wanted to bring it down to the brain level, right? Yes, you, right, right. I wanted to bring down to the to the to the science level. Okay, here are your bioevolutionary programs. Here are your social cultural programs. And if you take a look at, for example, the um, uh, you know free will and the incompatibilist uh, uh, philosophies, right? You're being programmed, right? You know your genes are already pre-programmed. You didn't choose them, right? And then and then um, your 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 situation at the womb, um, you know, uh, as soon as you can hear your mom, for example, your or your brain is already getting programmed. Your body is already getting programmed. The stress that your mother feels is already programming you all the way to your birth and you know your socioeconomic condition and so on, right? And and, and so that that for me is is uh, more like um, uh, you know y- 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 you're basically starting off with that kind. You're already getting programmed even you know even before uh, uh, e- even before you actually realize that uh, you know you have an ego. You have a, a self referential system in there. Very deeply, I agree. I, I like your model. I agree with it. I I would perhaps su- suggest something uh, uh, because you put it in the you put it in the context of essentially going against biological processes. I would suggest that actually both of those do because uh, there's the monastic because it's all about reproduction, right? And it, it, the monastic one is non-reproductive because it is survival and reproduction. Yeah, it's just like you're cut. You're basically the monastics cut the reproductive line. And that's why <laughs> parents cry when they <laughs> they hear that somebody's becoming a yogi, right? But then the the other one you're you're discussing like a uh, kind of a left-handed um, or a transgressive approach. I think that yes. is also um, I, 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 let's be honest, often involves sexual extremity and is also generally non-reproductive. It's it's also an attempt to cut the biological programming by going against. You said the mores of society. Well, the mores of society always revolve around reproduction. Right. So it's also an attempt to cut the reproductive line or can be uh, in by by um, by by doing shocking things. Uh, often, um, you know, changing sexual orientation uh, has a big thing to do with that. Um, certainly did in the case of Crowley. Um, but I think that I would I would like to add another another path to that, which is simply the, the householder yogi path, which is going with the evolutionary current, decide, having a career and having a family, 
but doing so with meta-awareness and understanding that one is playing a role. And I think this is generally regarded as the hardest path, but I think it's also, it, and it's not for everyone, but it's because it's very hard to do all of those things. It's a, it's a big, it's a tall order to have a successful career, family, and spiritual practice. That's a well, lot, right? I, 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 I agree with you there. Um, and because it's a, it's a most difficult and uh, usually the most neglected, right? Because you need an entire community that supports the same idea. Yes. You need an entire uh, entire community that actually does that path. You know, you can't do it. Alone. Or you adapt yourself to the one around you. But ideally, yes, ideally, yeah. but, you know. Because uh, everyone will be going through these phases, right? Everyone will yeah. be going through, through uh, you know, now is the time to have kids, now is the time to, you know, you, you earn money, and then, then, then you go, and then, uh, you know. Uh, so it's, it's all of these different stages to go through. And if everyone is agreed in the community that that's the phases to go through, then you ha actually have that support, right? Because people know that you are all uh, in, in that together. And yeah, that at least idea. that's the way yeah. that's that's the way I, I, I see the householder um, uh, uh, path uh, for doing that. Um, it's but and that's always how it was, and it's how it was particularly in you know classic India. But um, you know we live in a fallen world now, so everyone's <laughs> got everyone's got to figure it out on their own. But I think that as an I, I I but I do I do still still think that it is possible whether it's with so because we have the internet for social support as well, and and people. Um, uh, that's generally where I urge my students towards. I also think that the you mentioned that the 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 monastic lifestyle is a cop out, and and I agree. And I think that just to just to further agree with you, you said you were talking about reactivity. I think for me, the name of the game is non reactivity. It's filing down that reactivity. So I'm I'm with you on the same page there. Um, that's you know getting out into meta awareness and filing down attachment and aversion. So that you can get the solid state awareness that that's kind of the name of the game and i think that the number one place to do that is not in a, a monastery but it's in a in relationship right or the primary intimate relationship a family relationship community relationship it's dealing with other people right so so i that, and that's in some ways where, where i think that the householder path is is is, is ideal right uh, i think I'd like to add something there, you, you know, um, because uh, I, I find all of these things very anthropocentric, very human centric. Yeah, you know, and and um, actually, I've been really big on what's our relationship to Earth, you know, your relationship to your environment, because we are, uh, you know, shaped by our environment and and uh, and very open to it. And uh, we have isolated ourselves from our connection to it, even if we aren't. Right. Uh, in fact, when I lecture on vitamin D, you know, the, the first thing that I say, you are yoked to the sun, whether you like it or not. Right. Um, and uh, and so uh, for me, in, in terms of the bigger picture, Jason, when you're meditating and doing all these things, you begin to to see uh, exactly, you know, uh, what you see your desires and and say you know I I will do this to have more money uh, and so I will use child labor and so I will traffic humans <laughs> that's and, what I meditate and, on yeah and 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 so on and so forth right so you could see that um, uh, that then what happens you know to, to to all the plastics in the ocean and all of this and that and we only have one spaceship right now right um yep. uh, that uh, that we live in and you see your relationships that so i've actually you know when we, i become more careful in not saying what's your relationship 
to you know your to other people, etc. What's your relationship to your pets and to other animals in your house? What's That's your a great relationship? Point. Yeah. So and and you examine you. What's your relationship to your job? Not not your boss, but your job, right? What's I your think, uh, yeah. Right, right. And how are you relating with your government? How do you view your government? Because that determines how you actually will respond uh, to them. Um, I think also, how do you relate to your supply chain? Yeah, yeah. You know, where's the human, like you said, child labor, human trafficking? Like, if you look at all, like all the computers that I'm doing on this, all this on, it's all you know. There's child labor and human trafficking in that. The food, the cardboard, the plastic. You know, it's like there's no way to separate oneself from that, and we, we do need to become aware of that. And this is a new audio studio, right? And yeah, the, the, yeah. <laughs> that you have. I actually built it with child labor. <laughs> I came here to no, I didn't. I actually broke my finger assembling it, but but uh, no, it was all me. But but of course, you know, it's like we but we have all these incredible uh, toys, but you know, they they come from somewhere. Yeah. So that relationship is uh, you have to examine it because it builds as again, I, I said, you know, you have to examine uh, the perspective that you're looking. It's just one of the lenses you're looking at. And um, this uh, came to me. Um, I have a book that I never published because the publisher said doctors don't read. Right. And it's geared towards doctors. <laughs> but but what? I was uh, when looking what at bizarre the bizarre <laughs> thing. I've heard some bizarre things from publishers. Like I've, I've written things. And they just said it's too political. And then you know, <laughs> I'm like, well, well, in what way? Like, at least tell me I'm a bad writer. I mean, they didn't. <laughs> I didn't say that, so I guess I'm not. But it's, it's too political. I'm like, well, can you say more? No. Okay. All right. No, this, this editor loved it, but she's. I, I was uh, two sh- chapters uh, shy of finishing the book, and she said, eh, "Doctors don't read." And I said, "Okay, I, I shelved it." <laughs> but, in, <laughs> but but in there um, is actually, you know, um, it's something about uh, the uh, this disease causation, right, in medicine. Um, in the beginning, when when the uh, uh, you know. Uh, when someone had a UTI, right, a uh, you know, tract infection, it was painful, and they would attribute it to something magical, right? Like, like you peed on some dwarves in their home in the forest. Right? Oh, that's and, right. That explains it, then. right? Uh, yeah. yeah so, I was wondering so, about this. So, so now, your what's your treatment, right? You 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 give some offerings in the elf mounds, uh, you know, of some food and stuff to appease them, right? So that's that's the way you did it. But when uh, the religious people came about with their explanation, they they would go, okay, you know, the seizure is because of the demons, you know, inside the body. And so trepanation or trephination, right? They put holes yeah. in the yeah, yeah. head to, to let the devil escape, right? And so uh, amazingly. Uh, yeah. And then and then after that it was uh, it became emp- empirical, right? Oh, the seizure is actually from uh, hyperactive fossi, electrical fossi in the brain. Right. And and then we went to a, a, a rational phase now where, you know, the chances of you getting cancer from cigarette smoking is X, Y, Z or, you know, for you sustaining an injury without a seatbelt is uh, X, Y, Z. And that's very statistical. The thing is, we don't, you know, as human beings, we don't think statistically. And this is one of the things that's probably, uh, you know, um, it, for me, it's a useful tool for for people who are meditating. And doing all these meta exercises, one tool that they could use logically, you know, in daily life is taking a look at, you know, how do I view this in statistical terms? When you're looking at a big, you know, when you're looking at a local first person experience is fine. But when you're looking at a huge number of, of people and events, you cannot use your own intuition. Right. Like a very simple example is that most people would take their cars, even if it's more unsafe to take a car than to take a plane. 
right? So, um, you know, we, because we don't, yeah, this yeah, is yeah. not, that's this is, yeah, this is non-intuitive. And yeah, one of the things that I, I, I like that, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that I found very useful for you to be non-reactive, right, uh, is to basically, as soon as you identify that you're reacting to something, does this require a statistical point of view, right? Does this become a rational, does this require a rational point of view? Um, you know, let's just take, uh, for example, and and no 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 offense to to anti-vaxxers here, um, but it's just looking at any vaccine that has been ever produced or you've been vaccinated, etc. There is a certain percentage. Okay, say you vaccinate a million people and one person gets uh, some side effect. Sure. Right? Yeah, it's like we statistically look at that. Is that acceptable? Right. Uh, is that acceptable for for you know for uh, oral polio vaccine? We 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 determined that one in ten thousand is acceptable, right? And that's really high for that's me. Very right? high. Yeah, it's point zero zero one percent. So, so you could see that we have, and we cannot put this statistically in our heads. Like, look, you know, you're looking at a pandemic now with all the vaccines getting rolled out, et cetera, et cetera. Just looking at it statistically, you will say, oh. You know, instead of getting pushed emotionally on this and that issue, like, is this does this require a rational type of thinking? I agree. I think that this is one of the um, this is in in I think that statistics or mathematics in general are another excellent tool in the same way that meditation is to get you out of reactivity. You know, because it's like we are we by nature construct stories about reality from the data that we have we just construct them from too small of data sets so um you know particularly now with the the internet connected world that we have i mean it is so incredible to actually get actual information about things and like i deal with this every day because i run a business and if i run the business on decisions that are from my quote unquote gut feeling generally those are bad decisions contrary to what people think the correct decisions are almost all statistical but you need to get uh, statistical significance uh, you know of course first you need a lot of data um, and this of course brings up the questions of artificial intelligence you know as artificial intelligence is by its nature a creature <laughs> intelligence created out of statistics and uh, or large data sets uh, yeah. it's trained on and uh, but the so I think we're very quickly entering. Well, I would say we're quickly entering all that. Part of me thinks that the world should be run on pure data, you know, pure data. I mean, like decision, even political decisions should be made on data. Uh, it should, they should be not to be cliche, but th that we should have data driven governance. The, 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 but of course, there's a lot of ethical um, potentially pitfalls there. But there's also ethical, there's too many, as we see in America, there's, you know, we have a, a, an emotionally based, personality based political system, which is just uh, utterly dysfunctional. Um, as, well, as, as so. long as the data uh, are not biased, right? As, well, so I, I'd like to yeah. I'd like to say as long as the data are not prejudiced. People like to use <laughs> people like yeah. to use bias, but yeah, as absolutely. long as the data are not prejudiced, right? As has been uh, complained about by you know facial recognition technologies, absolutely. for example, and so cannot uh, identify you know uh, people of darker skin properly. Absolutely, yeah, it's um, an algorithms issue, and and you know this is I, I think people are aware of this. Not probably not as much as they need to be. I think that we, when I was working with Google on briefly uh, with their artist, artist and machine intelligence program on AI, my whole point that I was making 
was, which is certainly not unique to me, but which I was continuing to make, is that the bias is inherent in the cultural assumptions that go into the AI in the first place. And it, basically what I said to them is, you're building a god. So for, for, the, love of, for the love of God, make it a nice god, right? Uh, if you make it like, if you, you, the inherent assumptions that go into it, as we both know, often are actually by definition, our assumptions about reality are usually totally uh, scotomas. They're, they're, we're, they're, we're unaware of them. And that's very dangerous. And so the people that program the AI, particularly if it becomes an evolutionary algorithm and it begins self-training itself, well, the, the seed that goes into it is quite critical. We need to be very careful about that because the if we just put in the same assumptions that have got us where we are now, which is, you know, a, a dominator, <laughs> you know, empire uh, that is, that is, has, has built itself by uh, completely depersoning others. Right. Yeah. You, uh, you, you, we're going to get that more of that, but even more, you know, so. You recall the news, right? The Microsoft chat bot that was just on for 12 hours. By oh, the end, okay. yeah, yeah, no, that by was the end of, thing by I was the end of 12 hours. It became a totally... like, imagine an AI that's trained on the whole internet, it's just going to be this like Nazi sex fetishist, you know. It's like... <laughs> the, this, this, um, well, this is a documentary that I just saw, uh, on, on uh, AI and, and bias. And you know, we, we would expect this, especially for um, those that are doing um, unsupervised learning, right? Mm -hmm. Um, where if it's supervised learning, I remember doing uh, supervised learning before where you put in uh, you know images of, of cancer cells and non-cancer cells and and actually you know training the system in a supervised way but what we're doing now is black box right so we're mm -hmm. we're doing um, uh, unsupervised and we don't know exactly how the weighting happens inside the the um, generative artificial neural networks but uh, what what I uh, see going on here, um, as, as actually detailed by by the documentary, is that China is doing a different, going a different way, where they're actually taking the data from all of their citizens, and you're required to register, and so on and so forth. That's the godlike thing. Well, what's what more disappointing is the is, is the U.S. Right? Uh, it's like we're using AI to see whether or not I could get you, you to to buy this type of shoes and that kind yeah. of bag and, yeah, yeah. and so on. So so it's it's this is this uh, totally uh, uh, different. Uh, divide uh that's uh going on right in in the particular well i think that may be yeah that i mean but then again it's like who knows what's going on behind closed doors at companies you know i, I think that because obviously these these you know amazon facebook google have these un unimaginably huge data data lakes as does the nsa and, and certainly china um, and, but a lot of it is now during, because of COVID being volunteered. I mean, like for, you know, in, in Israel, from what I understand, they instituted the vaccine passport system and they were able to get everyone vaccinated right away. But one of the conditions of it was that they just volunteered everyone's medical information to Pfizer and these other companies in order to get it done faster. So they just volunteered, they just, they just volunteered everyone's data. Um, and I know Google has been trying to get access to the NHS records forever, uh, and I don't know where the state the state of that is, so that they can train, uh, presumably, so that they can train AIs on it to you know cure cancer and things like this. But who knows what else they have? Google also operates twenty three and Me, so they have all of that gen volunteer genetic data. Um, so, yeah, I, yeah, I don't know what's going on behind the scenes. You know, you know um, uh, just two two pieces here. Uh, one historic is um, when I was writing my 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 uh, neural circuitry database or Connect Home. Uh, I was at the uh, Carnegie, and um, you know, 
uh, I wandered into a room and uh, I, I took a look at the screens and it was like data of, you know, uh, educational attainment and uh, income and, you know, purchases and, and such a such history. And I looked at it and I said, wow, I said, what's this? And I saw it was of a credit card company. Remember, this was, you know, 30 years ago. And, oh, oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, so 30 wow. years ago. Wow. And when a guard saw me, he basically just shoved me out of the wow. room. He said, you're not supposed to see that. So you probably can't er- say which company it was on air. But <laughs> even as, as early as that, right? Even as early as that time, we were already being watched, right? We just didn't know it. Right now, we, we just have a more awareness of our privacy. That's why all these things are coming out in the open, but they were no, already the, doing that, it at the time. Absolutely. I mean, I mean the, particularly, you know, starting in the 50s, the construction of this kind of technocratic society but also like for instance i was just i was watching that ken burns documentary on the vietnam war and they're talking about they essentially built a a rudimentary ai to try and tell them how to win the war in uh in the basement of the pentagon you know they built a computer and they 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 ran in all this data and stuff like this and it gave them bad info it basically said the war wasn't winnable (laughs) which turned out to be true but but you know they there's a real danger in that which they found out at the time which is seeing seeing i mean it, this is just cliched but i mean at the time it was very true it's like they're just feeding in troop positions and number of ammunition counts and number of m16s and all this and, and it's just like it becomes it, it 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 very much you know i think pr- perhaps the most prophetic thing ever said about what will become the ai is is uh is stalin you know the death of one is a tragedy <laughs> millions is just a statistic right yeah, yeah. so well, um, the the, um, uh, the other point I wanted to make was that you know, uh, as as uh, one of the things that I, I teach my students is actually to recognize their cognitive biases, right? And the way Art. to do that is to really shift into rational thinking or to statistical thinking, and you know, little things like you know, classic examples of game theory, um, like you know, you already spent this much money in in a movie and you hated it. You know, should you leave the movie house? And uh, people say, oh, no, you know, I already spent money for it. Well, you know, whether or not you you uh, you leave and you're not enjoying it, you know, you've already put in the money. So, you know, it's like, so it's, it's, it's fine to leave, you know, little things like those that in your policy, particularly for business. I mean, that's relationships. That's a critical one for people to get sunk cost fallacy. Yeah. Sunk cost fallacy, confirmation bias, especially in social media and so on. It's like, I make them very aware, you know, not only in business and, and, and so on, but in their daily lives, you know, how, how they, uh, how they do this. And, uh, one of the things that I introduce in, in a more, uh, advanced phase is the work of Carl. Friston, you're uh, familiar with him? I'm not. Uh, Carl Friston is uh, uh, basically, um, uh, uh, he's a, a psychiatrist and um, neuroscientist. He's uh, one of the most influential neuroscientists of time, and he's a computational neuroscientist. Uh, he's in the shortlist for Nobel. And uh, the first time I read his stuff, I could not fucking know what was going on. <laughs> and and it took me a while uh, because there were postings, uh, you know, there were there were postings as a Starlink Codex, etc. Cetera, et cetera. Like, God help us, you know, how do we understand his work? But I finally uh, got to understand it's actually very simple. Uh, uh, and uh, his 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 work is actually um, uh, uh, being followed closely by the machine learning artificial intelligence community, and that's why I mentioned him. And because also uh, it 
borders on what consciousness is, you know, his work. So essentially he has uh, what's called each, each system, um, you know, uh, uh, each uh, organism or uh, system that uh, minimizes uh, free energy, right? Uh, that that uh, that minimizes free energy. Uh, you know, uh, you you can see it basically uh, uh, basically alter its behavior and its environment. So uh, it's it's part of. Um, uh, there's a anyway. There's a concept called uh, uh, free energy that every organism minimizes, and he applies it to the brain. So essentially, you have, you have an input, and then um, the input actually just checks for uh, minimizes free energy, meaning it's it mat- it checks whether or not its model of the environment of uh, what is outside is basically um, matches with the model that is created inside the brain, right? And then and then uh, it acts to minimize the error, right? So it acts to minimize uh, that error. And you could basically make that abstract and put that into any system. And um, so you say, you know, um, um, he, he essentially was the difference between, um, um, you know, a, a drop of ink, right? A drop of ink in water. A drop of ink in water has a, has a boundary, right? Um, but it's, it's not sensing its external environment. Right, and it doesn't have anything to change the environment with. Whereas an, an organism, an, uh, a unicellular organism, for example, would be able to move itself away from, say, a temperature gradient, right? Because its model of the world is that that's that's going to be harmful for him. So survival first, right? It's going to be uh, uh, harmful for him. But survival isn't programmed into it. It's just checking whether or not the external model of the world, the external world, the model that is created for its internal world matches the external and by how much error. So um, minimizing free energy means minimizing that error of the model of the world. So now they've created um, machine learning systems that are not trained on anything, but just minimizing the free energy, and they're getting fantastic results. So it's something that I, I, I am evaluating because one of the things that, uh, that he said in an interview, so how do you define life then, right? is having the capacity to change the state of the external world meaning if you have a flagellum as a unicellular organism you could you could you could swim away or you could change right uh the uh, where you are and he calls this uh he calls this uh, thing epistemic foraging i love the i That's love the true. phrase it's a great I'll phrase yeah I'm trying uh, to think of a counter example i mean certainly um I mean, certainly even chemicals and radio, radioactive compounds very d- dramatically change the world. I mean, they can't move themselves, but there, there's many non-living things that can... Yeah, but they don't create a model of the world from within them. Right? You, right. This once they, they actively have a model of the world. So, that's a, so they create a, a, a model of the world and then it, it act with independent... It would, yeah, and then it will act to minimize its error of its prediction of the world, uh, right? Okay. So this also could be then applied to artificial intelligence. Right? Yeah, because it's uh, artificial. So basically, it's minimizing its error in predicting. That's the summary of it. So it minimizes its error of prediction of the of 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 the uh, office model of the world. And you think this applies all the way down to like single-celled organisms? That's in fact that's model? where that's that's where he was brought to in the interview, right? And 
Um, and then she said, so uh, it was very interesting. So what is life then? And it's like, well, you know, it's it boils down to the simple capacity to move actively to change the state, right? To, to minimize your error of prediction. Mm-hmm. So that's the, uh, it sort of really boils down everything to, you know, uh, statistical mechanics, really. Um, it, and it's, it's very, it's a very interesting um, uh, notion. Of course, it has its critics, but I'm watching it very it's closely. It's interesting that he went for that instead of, if I was to, to think about that, like I, it's interesting that he went for that instead of replication, right? You could look at life as self-replicating systems because in, in my mind, the most fundamental building block of life is that it re, it, re, it replicates itself in some way. I think I, it applies it, across it, the board. It, 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 you know, Jason, I'm more of a survival uh, guy rather than a replication guy because replication is a mode of survival. Okay. Right. So it's a mode of sur- replication. It's a mode of surviving. So uh, look at us. You know, uh, we have kids because we know that we're not going to live forever. So essentially, this for sexual reproduction, right? And uh, for me, uh, being able to replicate. Uh, uh, this is just me, right? Because I, I take a look at it. First, you have to survive, right? And then as a mode of surviving, you reproduce, right? Whether or not it's your genes. That's why, you know, um, Dawkins uh, said it's the selfish genes. We're just carriers for the genes anyway. If you go and and uh, assume the perspective of the gene, it's like, oh, you know, this you know, this sack is is going to be gone, but I'm going to make sure that, you know, he fucks his way to death until, right. you know, until, uh, so, so this, this is, uh, and for me, that's the way I look at it. So, um, uh, uh, reproduction becomes secondary to us, uh, to it because it's basically uh, a mode of surviving. I, it's just, that's just my, my point of view. Okay. So then we could, I mean, like just theoretically, we could have a, some type of immortal, uh, organism, like a, like a tardigrade or something like that, which is, you know, will be immortal, but not reproduce theoretically. Yeah. Yeah. For me, if, for example, if you take a look at the experiments that's going on, they're trying to create, um, uh, the, you know, uh, to, to try to evolve, uh, life, right. How did life evolve? And they, there, there's, there is a lab that actually tries to do this by taking a look at, you know, ammonia and all of those and trying to see whether or not life will come out of that. Um, but what I, what I imagine uh, happening is that, you know, say you get a first blob that's able to do this. It's probably not going to, to um, uh, replicate right away, right? It's going to, to be surviving, et cetera. And then it will disintegrate. And then another blob within, in the same conditions, right? Manages to say sequester some within, within its, itself, uh, some, uh, mo- some, some of the molecules required for RNA. Right, um, because the 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 uh, the predominant uh, view is that it was an RNA world before it became a DNA world, right? So you you could see that all the RNA then, yeah, yeah. So so then and then and and then so on. So and then so basically it becomes a competition among these uh, these species, and then the then there came the capacity to to reproduce themselves because uh, for me evolution is evolution is not of the fittest but of the most stable, right? So yeah. what is the most stable system? Uh, out there. Yeah, and I, only- I think that's true. And I mean, you know, it's like cockroaches will inherit the earth. You know? It's like yeah. <laughs> it's totally true. And and I think that um obviously that 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 experiment is uh no, I think you're right. I, I don't need to say more about it than that. I think that's 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 a more correct statement. 
But you see, from from consciousness, we could see now how we have this begun to discuss all this, right? It, you know, if if is, is, is consciousness a, uh, an in, an inherent property of the universe, and then from there you begin to construct all of these uh, uh, things that are that are able to minimize their free energy, you know, by checking their their models, uh, predictive uh, success, you know, um, uh, of the world, and then well, are they alive? Right from an ink blot to a uh, an ink blob to an organism, and then you know you and then uh, it's alive. But you know where do you place consciousness then? Right? Is it inherent? Is it is it below preceding yeah. everything else, or is it as we're looking at it now as an emergent property of systems? I think, I think all roads and psychism, which nobody. <laughs> that's just me. I would say that, wouldn't I? You know, I can say that. I can get away with that because I'm not a scientist, but uh, I do. I do think that that is the case. Uh, uh, personally, I went and on that note. I re, I want to because this is this podcast. I got to ask you about your experience with Zogchen and Bone and and uh, and how you got interested in that and what what that process was like. Did you go study with with people? Did you? Uh, was this an earlier, did you do this earlier in life or did it become a, a, a interest later on? Uh, how, how did your, uh, your own, uh, uh, mystic journey, if you will, happen particularly? And what was that like from a, a scientific background? Well, um, it is actually quite uh, interesting because, uh, I was just buying some jam from a monastery and, and, um, it's, it's gone now. Uh, it's no longer there. And, uh, there was, a. uh, you know, a monk that was seated on the steps, and uh, you know, uh, basically, I came up to him to say hello. You know, bringing some jam in, and you know, he started talking to me. Um, you know, uh, it, he asked me where I, uh, where what I was doing. I said, "I'm doing a you know, I'm a doctor poking brains, but I'm doing uh, my research on." Uh, artificial intelligence specifically interested in consciousness and she said consciousness oh you know turns out he is an aerospace engineer from stanford so uh, and who is actually the head of that and he said uh you know um he said uh, i said if you're willing uh he basically offered he said if, if you want we could i could teach you you know what we uh, how we look at uh you know uh, because I don't read any of the books, you know, I, I can't read them. Uh, and he said, you know, I can sit with you and uh, read them with you. So uh, essentially, I was uh, there um, most weekends uh, while being in the lab. It was um, it was uh, a little difficult in the beginning because I was I kept on translating. Right, uh, I kept on translating. From Tibetan? Uh, no, I kept on translating what he was saying in terms oh, of the okay. Easter, yeah. Eastern philosophy, yeah. right, into the lab where I was working on the nervous system on this worm, right? And I was, you, you know, you're you're studying this and you're publishing a paper on our worms, our our C elegans worms left or right handed, or chiral, you know, they call it chirality. They have no hands. Um, but um, you know, you begin to to uh, to uh, you know see what he's saying because uh, you know I'm I'm studying this uh, tiny little organism, and you take a look at and examine your own right. And uh, the thing that was uh, most interesting is that I've had uh, I've been meditating since high school, right? So I've you know tried various modes of, of meditation all the way to college, etc. Mm -hmm. But it was more of a concentrative type of uh, meditation, right? I 
I am known for my powers of concentration where, you know, you had a loud bang behind me and you couldn't distract me from oh. what I was doing. Um, that's that's how bad I was. So, you know, <laughs> someone yells fire and someone has yanked me out of the library, uh, that kind of thing. Um, but um, uh, the more I realized uh, the, the whole process is that I had this... Uh, peak experiences uh, in meditation where I was just observing all of these thoughts coming up and this came out naturally, right? Um, so when he uh, essentially said, uh, well, they're, they're coming from, from the bond tradition um, and so on. So, so I, you know, I, I basically began to, to study with them uh, and, and the group. So on. And, and it was uh, quite um, uh, in, interesting for me because, uh, you know, this, this is a most interesting statement that I remember from that. He said, you know, he said, Bon, before Buddhism, he said, was not, there was no classification, right? And he said, Buddhism is like a predator. It's a big religion. It will eat up all of the smaller religions. Oh, uh, yeah, they're real, they're real Bon people then. Yeah, yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. It will eat up all of these smaller groups like Bon. Yeah. Right, right. we have smaller groups like Bond, but we've managed to. Is the one thing that came out of that that they were able to classify Bond practices. Right, they were able to, you know, nine ways of Bond, etc. Was post Buddhist. They were able to classify, you know, what you would call in in uh, Western magic as evocation, invocation. You know, sure. um, so, yeah. My uh, understanding of Bond, I don't know. I haven't done Bond, but I've done um, the comparable shamanism from the other side of the Himalayas in India or in, in Nepal, excuse me. Um, but my understanding of Bon is that it's, it's essentially shamanism and magic, right? And there are that, divination and, and, and evocation and all. Yeah. And, and, um, they call it soul work, um, okay. you know, uh, where you, you know, you see these uh, practices that were popularized, uh, before where you retrieve bits and pieces of your soul for someone else that you gave in, out in and it's on so forth. But, um, um, the way uh, the way um, he was explaining it to me is that these are bits and pieces of energy that will that have to come back to you or something mm -hmm. like that, you know. Um, so it, it was interesting in the sense that the first, uh, like the first four ways of bond, are all about magic, right? So it's it's uh, if you look at the classification, it's all about magic, and then the fifth and the sixth way is how you live your life, more like you know the the uh, more like Buddhism. You know, so right life. We do that at the end instead of the beginning, which is so, how, you know, Buddhism and yoga do that at the beginning. Yeah. At the end. Okay. Yeah. The bond starts with magic first uh, because cool. it's more, and, and the magic is a lot more of a, of a energy systems more than anything. Yeah. Right. Um, because they consider the, you know, the, uh, the, those dimensions, the realms are really part of this dimension, just part of an expanded consciousness. Mm -hmm. uh, the way I, the way I view it now is really like uh, the way Douglas Harding in the headless way, right? Uh, puts it. It's like right now you're looking at me as a person, but if you move far away from me and above me, you'll see me as a, as a city and you move uh, far away from me, you see me as the earth and so on. That's if you move great, close. That's great. That's great. That's an yeah. interesting way of looking at it. Yeah. Yeah. And then if you move uh, farther from me, you'll see me as a galaxy. So you, who are you really? Right. And if you move close to me, you'll see me as cells and you move closer, sure. uh, you know, and get closer. And then finally, what do you find? Right. Uh, uh, so uh, it's a, it's a question mark. You don't know what it is that you'll right. find in there. So that's the way I actually um, now conceptualize what he was trying to teach. Right. So wherever, wh whatever you're, you're, uh, you know, it depends on where you're actually looking or where you're meeting something at.
No, I think um, it's interesting. I mean, just my 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 view of magic also is is largely. I don't know. I'm actually very reductionist about magic these days. I, I think it's actually more interesting to think about it in terms of neurotransmitters, what's happening in the brain, what does meditation do? And it's it's obviously it gets me into less cultural hot water to teach it that way. I think it makes it more um, palatable to people. But I also think that, you know, my experience doing so much wackadoodle magic stuff is like, yeah, I mean, we're, we're interacting with, can you imagine like, you know, uh, some type of insect in your carpet trying to interact with you or, you know, it's like we're interacting with these massive interlocking systems that we were not able to perceive because our, our, yeah. our, our apparatus yeah. for perceiving them is so limited, but it's limited. like, that doesn't mean that they're not there like, and yeah. we might not be able to somehow find a way to signal to them, right? Because yeah. if they're also intelligent and I'm not, I'm not even being religious at this point i'm just saying like there are much larger and much smaller systems than us and and, and fields of consciousness and and we don't need to call those gods or spirits they're just this vast architecture that we're in that we don't understand and but that doesn't mean I, that they're not intelligent and that there may not be a way to interact with them yeah i just i just uh, call them essentially energy currents right it's like okay. it's like a vast river with vast oceans with with many currents in them and it depends on where you want to flow so, you yeah. know, which current you want to flow with. And um, um, uh, essentially, if you take a look at the, you just, you just have to get to, to the right vibe or perspective. To yeah, be that's able critical to, and magic. I mean, yeah. we talk about the magical current or the 93 current or the 20 yeah. different magical currents, chaos uh, current. And that's, it's, it, it, it's the same as the idea of the stream in Buddhism. Yeah, this happens. It's very mysterious. Yeah, but um, so those are the first four, and then um, the the rest would be uh, you know live like five and six would be living living your how to uh, to live your life, you know, um, and then um, eight are the secret doctrines and uh, of uh, the secret teachings, uh, which are practices uh, that they have, um, uh, and then nine is dog chan. Okay. So. What are the uh, secret so, ones generally about? I mean, I don't, maybe they're secret, but usually, no, uh, um, it's basically, usually uh, those are sexual if they're secret. But um, it's um, uh, essentially, um, uh, you know, the, the classic definition, right? Um, it, it's, it's, it's basically, um, uh, basically, uh, uh, sutra, tantra, and dogchan. Right, so so the secret teachings revolve around the the various sutras, right, and and um, uh, essentially they say that you know the the, the shorthand of it is you know uh, the the sutra uh, basically seeks to deny or reject right a poison, right? It will if it's considered a poison, then you reject the poison. Whereas the tantra says, well, okay, you embrace it as uh, like a, a pill. Right or or that was this part of like a medicine for you, and Zog yeah, Chen do that every day. <laughs> yeah, and uh, Zog Chen uh, is actually swallowing the poison and uh, using it to uh, liberate you. Right, so yeah, so using it to to liberate your following, you know, so much uh, perspective on things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, so using it to liberate you. So so essentially, yeah. it's a preparation for Jiang Chen to to swallow the entire poison for liberation. 
right? Uh, no, that's so that's, that's that's that actually tends to be my pretty much fundamental approach. Not it's not articulated through Zogchen, but I mean that's that's very much in Hindu tantra as well. They have the, the story that you know Shiva swallows the entire you know ocean of poison and turns it blue in his throat. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Um. The um. The uh. Much of the. Uh, the tantras, of course, you, you learn, and then uh, as a way of life, etc. And then um, a heavy teaching on Vajrayana tantra, um, and and uh, uh, that particular uh, part, and what's uh, essentially essential to bond, right? Uh, essential to the bond practice, etc. That has been obfuscated, um, either obfuscated or uh, made palatable. Right uh, or made palatable. But to, what is what is that that was obfuscated? I'm curious. Like, um, uh, for example, the original uh, symbolisms in in um, uh, for example, just the word vajra, right? Uh, yeah. It means uh, they they call it the thunderbolt, uh, yeah. but it's, it yeah. actually means a dick. Uh, so yeah. uh, you know things like those uh, that uh, you know, thunderbolt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. You make it flash as a thunder thunderbolt, and you have a kid. So. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, things like those, like, uh, here you are, for example, you're reading a translation. Much of it was actually a lot of teaching and here's his, what the Western translation is. And here's what the actual, you know, um, uh, uh, how it actually looks like. Now that's the same in Western magic. I mean, usually if there's some, that's why I say, usually if there's something secret or obfuscated, almost always it's a dick joke. Uh, yeah. But, you yeah. Know, it's always sexual symbol symbolism that tends to be the way to understand things. Um, not not in a but you need to still interpret it correctly because there's a correct semiotics to things. But that tends to be what's going on. Yeah. Well, so so it's essentially like the path of rejection and then the path of uh, transformation and then the path of liberation. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially, it's how it's thought. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation. I should probably put a pin in it because I'm I'm dying of thirst and need to take a business call. We've been talking for two hours, though. So oh my God, have yeah, we? I'm, we oh have. My... I'm sure we could talk for for a long time, and there's all kinds of subjects we could touch upon. Uh, it's been uh, and and uh, so we should just uh, as as Sam Harris says, we just put a pin in it for now. Um, <laughs> what is there I, I love his precision of language. I mean. yeah, yeah. Is there anything? Uh, although, God, if you ever really want to, um, if you need to ever need to like hate your life listen to the uh debate he did with either ezra klein or jordan peterson it's just like oh my god but um uh is there anything you want to promote or tell people or how how can people find out more about you yes um actually um with a uh non-profit they have if you want to practice health optimization medicine uh, or if you're a non-doctor health there's health optimization practice or hope uh you can go to homehope.org we uh, offer the entire. Um, this is this is my nonprofit, so it's running on my money. So you know, come and learn how to to uh, to uh, basically uh, balance your uh, your metabolites so you can be healthy and it's sort of like as a maintenance for your body. And if you want to do that as a professional, you know, there's an entire course in there that's available for you. And if you're if not you know uh you can just take uh modules uh, the various different modules uh in there that are available too i uh also um uh started a company uh smarter not harder inc i joke that we're not a condom company um <laughs> yeah we're not yeah. a condom company um 
And uh, our brand of products there uh, is called Prescriptions. So that's like prescription, but with a TRO. And there are new topics uh, that I created specifically for myself. Um, one is called Blue Canotine. And it's doing quite well. Um, I call it, uh, uh, you know, um, the NZT, the um, <laughs> limitless. Yeah. But it's good for three to four hours. You know, it is a very gentle uh, rise and come what, down. What, what's in it? It is a methylene blue uh, oh, okay. caffeine. Caffeine, nicotine, I've tried, uh, and I've CBD. Tried okay, well, those are all good. I, I, uh, um, I, um, yeah, I've tried methylene blue. I'm my the jury's out. It's interesting. Yeah, now, a methylene blue doesn't have a kick in itself, but methylene blue is an MAOI, right? Okay. Uh, the uh, the other one is just pure methylene blue on request of people, right? Um, who just want some methylene blue, so it's called Just Blue. And we have several products actually coming out this year. I formulated all of them. Um, uh, that uh, will be uh, one will be uh, a trochee. We this is a trochee format, meaning uh, it's a uh, it's like a lozenge, but these are buckle trochees, meaning you have to shove it between your gum and your uh, uh, upper cheek, right? Okay. Cool. And um, one will be the ones coming out will be for anxiety, right? And it will contain some kava in it. Um, the and then uh, we have some. Um, uh, uh, we have something coming out for pain and also for uh, insomnia. Um, and those will be rolled out uh, this year. We're ready to go um, in probably a couple of months with uh, anxiety turkey. Awesome. So, yeah. And that's how, by the way, guys, that's how I fund the nonprofit. So okay. this is all, you know, this is all one hand giving back to the other and Very giving cool. to the other. So, well, I will definitely go check that stuff out and, and, uh, sounds great. Well, let's, I'm sure, I'm sure we will talk again, uh, not too long from now. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Yes. With um, that million dollar voice. Very soon. <laughs> that was a great conversation. And, uh, yeah, thank you again. And, uh, let's talk again soon. All right, Jason. All right. Okay, hope you really, really enjoyed that interview. I definitely did. Make sure to check us out at magic.me, M-A-G-I-C-K dot M-E, my school for magic, meditation, and mysticism. And come see us in the next office hours. They're every two weeks, so we got one coming up right away. And really looking forward to seeing you there. And it's always an amazing time. All right, until next time, I will see you in class. <laughs>